This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. everyone. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. What you're about to hear is a true story. To be clear, actually, you're about to hear a series of true stories. On Monday evening, I received the following message from my wife at around 11.30 p.m. Now, just so you know our routine, uh, these days, uh, I, I leave my home usually most nights, 9.30, 10 p.m., sometimes 10.30 p.m. if I can get a lot of work done at home. But um, usually my wife goes to bed around the time I leave. So usually usually she goes to bed around 10, sometimes a little earlier, sometimes 9 even, depending on if uh, Carmine has kept her up the previous day. And she messaged me at around 11.30 p.m. on Monday evening saying, I was asleep and then stupid fireworks went off around 10 and I've been awake Ever since. So she had her whole sleep disrupted Monday evening because of the fireworks situation. I received on Tuesday uh, an email from a listener, uh, fireworks rant. And I, I didn't even read the whole thing, but he goes on a whole thing all about how horrible fireworks are. They're dangerous, they're loud, they're disturbing. They're unwanted by residents. Uh, They also pose a nuisance to veterans of the military. And, you know, he goes on and on. And I remember last year I did a whole um, commentary all about how I was annoyed with fireworks because of uh, the disturbance that it had led to in my sleep and how uh, it had scared our cat, Melchizedek, he was totally scared. He had to run, you know, under the uh, under the couch. And I remember, and it really was disturbing to my sleep, honestly. It really screwed me up for that particular show, which I believe was on July 5th. I don't remember how the calendar fell last year, but I believe the next show was July 5th. And I was really, I had a tough time doing that show because I didn't get the usual two-hour nap that I would get on a Sunday night going into a Monday or on a holiday going into a, a work day. And I got a lot of blowback to that commentary last year, including my friend uh, Arthur Idala said, I can't believe you're so lame. You went off on fireworks and this and that. I said, you know, sorry, pal. It's just I, I think they're they were a little overrated. Now, maybe it's because I haven't seen the kind of the uh, call the ugly side of fireworks this year, which is disturbances to my sleep, disturbances to my pet or injuries in my neighborhood or the um, the littering and the garbage and the trash that fireworks so often creates in residential neighborhood uh, neighborhoods. But I do feel a little mellower towards fireworks this year, as opposed to when I gave that haranguing commentary last year. Here's the last bit of this true story. As I was driving in last night, I saw a couple of things. I was driving on the BQE, 
And there's a series of people, men working, and they got, uh, you know, shields over their faces and they're they're fixing something along the highway there. And they've got, uh, you know, some welding devices and you see these sparks flying off the metal of what they're working on and it flying basically right near to where they're working. And it's safe. They're all properly protected. And that's it. You just see about three or four guys with sparks as you're driving in all over. And then as I get on the FDR drive, I'm crossing over. I'm just crossing over the Brooklyn Bridge. I'm on the FDR drive. I'm heading north towards where the radio station is. And I see in the distance, a little uptown, I see they're launching fireworks over the East River. Now, I didn't hear them. I had the windows up. I was listening to the radio. I think I was listening to, uh, I think it was O'Reilly. But um, I'm seeing the these fireworks. And then I realized all these fireworks are, especially if you can't see them, all they are is just colored fire in the sky. And it's really not much different from the fireworks of this welder, this welder working on the metal on the highway. So it got me thinking, we're going to see a lot of fireworks in the next five or six days. I think every day you're going to see a bunch. And I'm just curious, where are you on the fireworks issue? Uh, I don't hate them as much as this one listener that wrote to me, but I got to tell you, as somebody that sleeps at odd hours, they are disturbing. And, you know... My cat, Melchizedek, has been through a lot, and I do feel bad for him that he's got to cower under the couch in his own home because people are firing off fireworks. So where are you on fireworks, 800-848-WABC? Do you like them? And how do you think fireworks are meant to be enjoyed? Because I think there's a lot to be said where if you're in Coney Island after a Cyclones game on a Friday or a Saturday night and they shoot up in the outfield, especially after a Cyclones win, that's really special. In Atlantic City on Friday, I know they're having their uh, fireworks spectacular on North Beach. And that's kind of a fun thing as well. Uh, If you go to Disney World, I don't know if they still do this, but the last time I was in Disney World, they would shoot up these fireworks, I think, every night over there. And people seem to get a a big kick out of them. So do you like them? How do you think they are meant to be enjoyed? My take at the moment, and again, I could become increasingly more hyperbolic over this over the next four or five days, but my take is this is one of those things that's just a little overrated. People love making such a big deal about fireworks when really all it is, it's just colored fire in the sky. So um, last year after I did my fireworks commentary, Arthur and I had this conversation about how I was off base on it. And then a day later, he sends me this SMS text message of an article and of an NHL player died after being hit by fireworks on July 4th. And I said, sort of jokingly, but not really, because, again, I was on an over-the-top anti-fireworks rant last year. I said, think of the lives that I'm saving. That was my response. And Arthur wrote back to me, you got to grow up with them, then you know how to handle them. 
maybe there's something to be said for that. Now, when I was a kid, I used to like to have a sparkler. Um, it was kind of fun. But I never really got really into blowing up M80s and uh, all sorts of other things. I thought it was okay. Even as a child, honestly, I would go to my my Aunt Madeline and Uncle Joe. They'd have a big Fourth of July party. People would shoot off some fireworks. It was okay. I remember thinking it was a little much, even as a six-year-old, a seven-year-old, as an eight-year-old. But no big deal. All right. Okay. It's fine. But um, maybe it is different if you grow up with them. Curious what you what you think of it. Also, if you're somebody that's a fireworks enthusiast, I'm also curious uh, if you can answer the question, if anybody can answer this question. Why do people get so into it? I mean, because the people that are really into fireworks, they are really into fireworks. And I'm not just talking about people that enjoy lighting them and setting them off. I, I can understand maybe that appeals to the the little bit of pyromaniac that's in all of us. But sometimes people are just really into, into watching the fireworks. I remember when uh, John Gotti used to have those big block parties all over Ozone Park and Howard Beach. A big part of that was the fireworks. They loved John Gotti, guy that everybody knew was a criminal. They loved John Gotti in that neighborhood for many reasons, but part of it was this 4th of July party. And they loved the sausage and peppers and they loved the the you know the great food, but a lot of it was they appreciated the fireworks display. So people get really into it. I'm also curious if it's different either way in terms of liking or disliking fireworks with children, uh, where you come down on that. My friend Brendan, when he got married, I guess this is about five years ago or so, four or five years ago, he went and actually paid to have fireworks at his wedding. And it was kind of cool to go out to the balcony at his, um, you know, where they had the catering hall and see fireworks shot off. But it's cool for, I don't know, a minute. Oh, okay, there's something that flies into the air and explodes. It's blue. That's, I think, the rarest color. There's something else that flies in the air and explodes. That's red. Okay, that does a little more spherical. I mean, call me crazy, but... You know, if you've seen one fireworks display, haven't you sort of seen them all? Maybe that's a little naive on my part. But uh, as many in the Facebook group have called me, I have been known to be naive. So I'm curious, where are you on fireworks? Do you like them? How do you think they're meant to be enjoyed? I don't have any issue if, uh, you know, on July 4th, especially if people want to have at a at a beach or, um, you know, at a big display and have people come and gather there, there to specifically watch the fireworks. It's when, I guess, they're on residential neighborhoods disturbing pets and people. And to that, to that kind of eccentric listener's point, I could see them setting off somebody that's a veteran that's maybe dealt with PTSD. And you remember when Mayor Giuliani came in, he, boom, he snapped his fingers and put a stop to that. There was, you remember the early years of uh, Giuliani's mayoralty? They disappeared instantly. There was no more pandemic fireworks. Now, since Giuliani left office, even though Bloomberg and de Blasio have said they've sort of had the same policy, they haven't. They haven't had the same sort of anti-fireworks enforcement that Rudy Giuliani did. He hated those fireworks displays unless they were authorized in a, in a proper manner. 800-848-9222. Where do you come down on this? Are you uh, – right now, I'm sort of mets and mets. 
But are you gung-ho pro-firework? Are you gung-ho anti-firework? Or are you like where I am, somewhere in between? And if you can answer the question, wherever you come down, are they, in fact, overrated? 800-848-WABC. Let me begin with Neil on Staten Island. Hello there, Neil. Hey, Frank. Uh, two things. Number one, my brother was an ER doctor. And every 4th of July, people would come in uh, who had the fingers blown off from handling fireworks. Oh, I'm not surprised. Uh, I am not surprised. I have seen that again and again. Yep. So, you know, they, they were fireworks enthusiasts early in the day, but certainly not late in the day. Uh, and it's for me personally, uh, being in an artillery unit, firing a howitzer, uh, fireworks don't thrill me. Matter of fact, they're not loud enough. You stand next to a howitzer when it goes off and you hear something that's loud. So I, I really don't care for fireworks. And uh, if I have to see a show or something, uh, like the Macy's or something, I'll watch it. But to, to seek it out, it's not for me. Well, now, when you say you'll watch it, the Macy's show, does that mean you'll actually drive somewhere and get yourself a good view, depending whether it's on the east side or the west side, and actually watch those fireworks? Or will you just watch it on television or something? Oh, definitely television. If I go to the bathroom, it's right there. If I want to cook, it's right there. <laughs> I go into the city. That's ridiculous. Yeah, well, thanks, uh, thanks, Neil. But, see, that to me is in some ways even more curious, right? Like, I like to, you know, we have a fireplace, and that's one of the things that about our house that my wife really liked. And I like a fire. You know, I like the fact that it keeps you warm. I like the glow. I like watching it. It's kind of relaxing, almost like a lava lamp. I even like the smell of the firewood. But I really would never get into watching a Yule log on television. So to some extent, Neil's response puzzles me even a bit more that he's not into fireworks because, as he said, it's not loud enough. It's not like the weapons he fired off in the military but that he's interested enough in them to watch them on television. I know those are grandiose displays, and if memory serves, sometimes they go hand-in-hand hand with uh, with music. And that is kind of nice, and I think the, the Coney Island display might be similar. I think the Atlantic City display might be similar. I just, um, to me, I think it's fine. It's just one of those things to me that's a little overrated, and I've never understood, even when I was a child, why people get so into it. It's just, uh, and I'm hoping somebody can explain it to me. And maybe it is different with children. 800-848-WABC. Jimmy is in New City. Hello, Jimmy. All right, Frank. Well, I think professionally they're great. Fourth of July, as you said, after a game. Disney, my kids love it. Great. 2 a.m., you hear a blockbuster two days after Fourth of July. Oh, boy, forget about it. And you did bring up a nice point. Well, not a nice point, but a really good one. I hope somebody will take into consideration. PTSD, the soldiers that come back for it. They don't need that, guys. You know, the, the, the pets need it. My dog is horrified. So, so your you know, view. That's point. Yeah, so your view, Jimmy, is you enjoy watching them uh, as a spectator, but you don't really need to be a participant or see them up close. Oh, that's like you know, the macho maturity, immature guys are out there running around doing it since we've been kids. You know, I'm 55, enough already, you know. Um, but it just seems like that. But like with the kids and all to go out someplace, it is good. Fourth of July, let's, you know, get that uh, flag waving, and that's great. But, uh, you know, you always have that guy that's got to blow one or two off that he saves. Right. Well, so, yeah, but, I mean, why so, are they firing them off like, now? And, you're, and thanks, and thanks, Jimmy. You remember in 2020 when that was a big deal, I think it was on the 
Upper West Side is that you had this random collection of people firing off fireworks at night and disturbing people beginning, I think, in May. And then it continued up until August, from if memory serves. And it was disturbing to a lot of people. Linda is on Long Island. Hello, Linda. Hi, Frank. Uh, I have a very close friend who's a, a doctor, and he always wanted to be a surgeon. He talked about it a lot. Um, when he was a child, he was fooling around, you know, they, what they do today with the fireworks, and he blew up one of his fingers so he couldn't be a surgeon, and he always regretted that. You know, it was really hard. And then I thought, um, isn't it illegal to be doing it in the street? Yes. People's houses. Yes. But that's the difference between enforcement in the Giuliani era and in everybody else that came after Giuliani. Giuliani had a zero tolerance policy when it came to uh, firing off fireworks or anything like that. Uh, the 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 more recent mayors they have kind of had a, a different ignore everything yeah right? they've had Just a different ignore view. everything oh yeah who cares about people right <laughs> well I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go that far but uh, I think it's certainly a much more lax enforcement when it comes to fireworks and I remember a lot of people that I knew they were happy when Giuliani left they loved Giuliani on issue after issue. But they liked the fireworks, and they were happy that the cops weren't going to come arrest them for firing off fireworks again, uh, as was the case when uh, Mayor Giuliani was mayor. 800-848-9222. David is in the Garden State of New Jersey. Hello, David. Thanks for taking my my call, Frank. Sure. Appreciate it. And happy, yeah. happy Independence Day, everybody. I, I, I agree with the principle, which is, hey, if you're going to light them off, this year, Independence Day is technically uh, on Monday. And be a little appreciative. Some of us got millions of illegal aliens on welfare we got to support, so we got to be at work bright and early on Tuesday. Be that as it may, wait until you are done lighting off before you indulge. And, you know, 10 p.m., I think, is a reasonable amount of time. I'm just hearing the story about you said the West Side, there were people lighting off fireworks from as early as May. That, that in in 2020, is, I don't remember hearing the yeah. story last year, but in 2020, okay, I remember okay. this being a big deal. Yes. Well, I, I, I just am of the opinion if you're going to let them off, you know, be don't indulge until you're done. And uh, I agree with I like the, the Giuliani thing. And as for communist Bloomberg, I will never forget seeing on Staten Island a highway sign. If you know of anyone who's having fireworks, call this number. That kind of big brother nonsense nobody needs. It's twice a year if you include New Year's again. Wait until you're done before you indulge. Be an American, but have some uh, restraint. And as a non-combat veteran, I have the utmost respect for veterans with PTSD. But I wish to point out that veterans who are in a position where they have shell shock, battle fatigue, PTSD, or whatever the communists wish to call it today, they are veterans. And as such, we are all American citizens, and we live in a republic, not a police state. Right, but you're Thank not you, you're right. not saying that the people that use the term PTSD are communists, though, are you? No, no. But it was originally called shell shock, World War One. Audrey Murphy, he had a battle fatigue or shell shock. Yeah. Audie Murphy, thank you, Audie Murphy. Audrey was well, his. What wife. I'm alluding to is there is there is a definite disconnect in the average person who has never served, whereby they are in a position to think that they speak on behalf of those veterans who do not have society helping them. you got to be 21 to buy a pack of cigarettes if you're active duty. 
I, unless that's changed, I'd like to hear the ACLU's answer on that one. So I appreciate how that might come as a little abrasive and arrogant on my part. But when you don't have freedom, you miss it and you cherish it. And uh, I, I wish to say happy Independence Day to everybody. Absolutely, Hoorah. David. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, well said. 800-848-9222. See, the, the age for buying cigarettes was 18 but my understanding is they've just they've raised it recently in the last couple of years to 21. And I don't know where that comes down with folks that are in the military on the military basis. I think there may be an exception to allow active duty military to purchase cigarettes, even if they're under the age of 21, if it happens to be on a military base and they have uh, a military I.D. Jeff is on Long Island. Hello, Jeff. Yeah. Hey, how you doing, buddy? I'm great. Thanks for asking. You ever uh, talk to your buddy out here, bud? Which one? Uh, in Manville, you, you see. Oh, my brother-in-law. You. My brother-in-law, Josh? Yeah, you ever, you ever go out there and travel out here? Uh, well, he has yet to. He listens to the show, so he's listening right now. He has yet to invite my wife, who's his sister, or me to his home once. Wow. So we're waiting. Well, anyways. We're waiting. Anyways, talk about, talk about, I just want to talk about the fireworks. When I was younger, we used to we used to shoot shoot off uh, they call mortars and, and you put them in a pipe and they go up in the air. And a friend of mine put the mortar in there, and it didn't go off. So he reached over and looked to see what was going on, and it shot up and killed him. Oh so my! Me, so so to me. They should leave the fireworks to the professionals. Yeah, I tend to agree with you. All the ones that are in the streets, the people firing the stuff off, I'm telling you, people get their fingers blown off, people have died from it, they should leave it to the professionals. That's my take on that. Yeah, uh, thank you, Jeff. I I mean, first of all, think about what he just said, right? Now, I'm not saying it's right, but I could understand if you had a one out of four chance of uh, finding a a pot of gold worth $5 billion, I could understand, not that I would, but I could understand risking your life for that, right? That makes sense. You know, that's life-changing. You don't have to work anymore. Your kids are going to be taken care of. Okay, but why would you ever do something that's possibly risking your life to watch some fire in the sky that's colored? I just, to me, it's not worth... You know the the old uh, the old expression from that film, "The Girl Next Door." Uh, the juice has got to be worth the squeeze, right? That strikes me as a high risk, low reward situation. I mean, you think about that. You, here, first of all, I didn't plan to have people call in. We just heard from four people. One person knows has a friend that blew their finger off. This person knows somebody that died. Uh, all sorts of people are text messaging me and emailing me articles of other folks that died. This NHL hockey player last year that Arthur sent me the article about died. It's like, what are you doing? Why? I mean, is it worth it? What is the possible benefit? This is what I'm saying. In my view, it's just incredibly overrated. I don't get it. I don't get it. Remember uh, JPP from the Giants? He blew his hand off. Right. That's it. That's, I had forgotten off. that. Yes, that's exactly right. Uh, you are exactly right. 800-848-9222. We'll continue with your calls in a moment. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. WABC.
This is Kiss. I love it loud. Did you see the latest with them? Matt plays. Is that what you? Uh, I mean, I know the what's song. The, what's the latest? Uh, well, so the latest is this. I was going to save this for denunciations on Friday, but Kiss was performing in um, Austria, and they put up a big flag display of the flag of Australia. But it wasn't. Yeah, it was in Austria. Oh, it was. Oh, they were in Austria, they were Austria and, they put, and they put up the flag, flag for Australia. <laughs> so it was not their finest moment. All that loud music appears to have had some effect on their, on their brains. Although I'm sure that it wasn't their the decision crew, to crew do. Yeah, thing. whoever whoever was responsible. It reminds me when George W. Bush was running for president. I mean, every day was a walking comedy with George W. Bush, comedy or tragedy, and um, he confused the countries of Slovenia and Slovakia. Which is just just wonderful. Um, all right, but uh, there you go. That's Kiss. I like it a lot. Hey, this is also a true story. Those of you that are holding, I'll get to you in a minute. What? See, this is the most challenging question I ask myself every day. What day is it? It's Thursday. That means when I drove here, it was Wednesday. Okay, Tuesday. I was running very low on gasoline, so my plan was as such. Now I had also. I've said this has been, you know, a a tough month or so for me financially. First of all, with a kid, as I'm sure you know, it's always challenging, right? So, you know, you got – when my paycheck comes, you know, you got the mortgage payment. You got the car payment. We have our babysitter uh, payment. You got groceries. You got your phone bill. Then I had uh, my brother's wedding and a gift in Hawaii, then I had this uh, baptism slash uh, graduation party that I went to. Then I had a gift for my dad for Father's Day. Then I had another wedding to go to. And, and it's just like item after item after item. This has been an expensive month, right? So by the time I was uh, done paying my bills when I got paid last Friday, I was pretty much done. I, I had just about no money left. That's why. On and and on Tuesday, I also had n- almost no gas left. That's why on Tuesday I was thrilled that I got a check. You know, it's, there's nothing better. I don't care what profession you're in. There's nothing better than an unexpected check. It's it's like it's better than winning the lottery. It really is because if you win the lottery, everybody knows, and then you have everyone that's ever met you asking for money. I find I have everybody that's ever met me asking for favors anyway. I can't imagine what would happen if I won the lottery. But anyway, so I get a check on Tuesday. I said, this is great. I'm going to deposit it. I have a little bit of a cushion now. If there's any expenditures that are automatically coming out of my bank account, I don't have to worry about being overdrawn. I said, I'll be able to fill my gas tank on the way into work. I am in good shape. So Tuesday night into Wednesday morning, I'm running a little late. You know, I try to get here by 11 or so at the latest. And luckily, the gas station that I go to is right by the bank that I go to. I'm a guy that likes small banks. I don't like to go to one of these bailed out banks, but it it means it's a little inconvenient when you need to find an ATM machine. Luckily, there's a bank right near the gas station that I go to, and this is a gas station that has some of the best prices anywhere around. So I pull into the bank whip out my uh, debit card to swipe so that I can access the lobby of the bank, which is obviously closed. It's around 1030 at night. Um, 
I'm swiping, swiping, swiping. The light never turns green. It's red. It's red. It won't let me access the ATM. Then I said, all right, well, I have another debit card for a wife uh, for an account that I share with my wife. Let me see if I could use that other debit card. Maybe the strip is something's wrong with the strip. I try that won't won't work. So the this particular bank, the door is not working. Usually you can get in with a swipe of the ATM card and and get in and make deposits or whatever else. I was going to deposit my check, which would have allowed me to do two things. One, have a little more money in there. And two, check my deposit to see how much money I have in my account so I know how much gas I can afford to buy. No dice. So now I walk around to the drive-through ATM. There's two ATMs at this particular bank bank branch. So I walk around to the drive-through ATM. I try to uh I try to swipe my ATM there. Not working. Not working. So now I'm not able to deposit my check and I'm not able to uh find out what my balance is to know how much money I have to buy gasoline. Fine. So I said, "All right. I probably have, I don't know, 15, 20, 30 dollars in there. I don't know." Let me go to the gas station. So I go to the gas station. I swipe my ATM card, my debit card, because it's a little cheaper. You can pay the cash price if you use your debit card instead of the credit card price. And I'm seeing, you know, I'm I'm saying I'm not going to go too crazy here because I don't want to be overdrawn or anything like that. So I'm seeing the thing go up, $15, $20, and I'm just about ready to wrap up. And I see the thing starts slowing down. I said, all right, maybe it's running low on gasoline, but I don't want a lot of gas anyway, just half a tank or so, just enough to get me to work until I can deposit this check. And, you know, so pretty much the the machine more or less stops at around $23.67. Okay, good. That's enough. I'm not sure if it's doing it because of, um, you know, it's out of gas, because that is a popular gas station because of the low prices or for whatever other reason. So. I drive to work, don't think much about it, but I still have this check that I was going to deposit the next day. So I go and on the way home yesterday morning, I'm driving a different route now, and I find another branch of the particular bank that I go to. And I go and, uh, you know, deposit my check. And then it gives you the option for another trans. It says, do you want a receipt? With your transaction. I said, yes, this will be a good way for me to see how much money is left in my account. So a receipt pops out and it says, you know, it records the number of the deposit, records the deposit amount. And then it says to the checking account. And then it says available and total. Right. There's two numbers. The available number that you can withdraw if you want. And the total number that's in the account. And so, lo and behold, both the available number and the total number is zero. Zero. Zero dollars and zero cents. Zero decimal point, zero, zero. So, I never realized that, I guess, is that if you use your debit card... point. If you use your debit card to buy gasoline, it will, or anything else, I suppose, it will stop at the point that you've run out of money. So that is a nice feature to be aware of. So those of you who use your debit card to buy gasoline, be aware that it will stop 
at 0.0. So that's why the gas stopped. But uh, I'm the big winner because I was able to make that deposit. I guess it takes a day or two to clear, and then I'll have that money to uh, to pay some bills. So I have enough gasoline for at least a couple of days, and then once this check clears, I'll be able to buy more gasoline. So it's uh, I'm the big big winner overall. And then just uh, just uh, a week and a day until payday. So then we'll be able to start this whole cycle again. But I thought that was interesting. I never saw that before, where you go to your – well, at least where I go to my bank account, and it says available and total amount zero. I've never seen that. I've been in the rears. I've seen a negative amount of money, but I've never seen just a straight zero. I thought, well, maybe I'll go to the grocer later, drop off some cans and bottles, get, you know, two, three dollars worth, just so at least there's something in there uh, in terms of cash. But I didn't have a chance to do that today. So until this this check that I deposited yesterday clears, then it's still it's still zero. But at least I have gasoline, right? 800-848-WABC, talking about fireworks and uh, the people who love them. Let me tell you what's coming up. Uh, in the 2 o'clock hour, this is uh, something. I just watched this documentary right before the show. All about the Green River Killer. It's called Sins of the Father. This is fascinating. We just had the 20th anniversary of the arrest of this particular serial killer, the Green River Killer, and he was leading this incredible double life. It looks like he may have killed about 40 women, most of them prostitutes. And this documentary, which is really compelling, this documentary, which is really compelling, deals with the kind of the double life this serial killer was leading. And we're going to get into it with the executive producer of this documentary, Robert Twilley, who's going to join us at 2.30. 3.30, AC Report. It's all about the strike. Friday, this strike of casino workers is supposed to begin. I'm supposed to be down there the following Friday. So I am hoping that uh, they can resolve whatever labor issues are leading to this strike. And Michael Sainato is one of the best labor reporters in America. He writes for The Guardian. He's going to join us to tell us what's at stake here when it comes to this strike. And Brian Kilmeade, he is going to uh, he's going to continue his series of weekly chats with us at uh, four thirty after the thousand dollar minute. I've been enjoying talking to Brian Kilmeade, and apparently a lot of you have been enjoying these discussions as well. So we'll look forward to uh, chatting with him. Meantime, uh, whatever's on your mind, now's the time. Eight hundred eight four eight WABC. Frank is in Babylon. Hello, Frank. Hi, good evening. Good morning, I mean. Uh, good to talk with you. Uh, the story you just related brought back um, memories of I had a very same situation occur when uh, I, I actually heard on on auto, you know, a phone teller when I called to find out about my bank account and my savings and all of that after on a payday. I had $0.00 in my account, which I had previously – uh, almost like ten thousand dollars in there. Well, where did and, all um, your money go? You spent it, or somebody stole well, it? Now, listen. This was a long. I'll make a long story short. But uh, my marriage was sort of on the rock. Oh boy! And um, yeah, I went to see a lawyer. My my ex wife already had seen a lawyer, and you know, we were sort of going in that direction. And the lawyer I went to see. Uh, to speak, you know, to find out, you know, about the whole process and all, said to me, 
lock down your accounts because you're going to start to lose money and uh, it's going to start disappearing. And I said, no, you don't understand. I said, I, my wife, I've known her since high school, we're high school sweethearts. Um, she would never do a thing like that. Even if she doesn't want to be married anymore, that's, that's another story. But anyway, make a long story short, about a week later, as I said, on a payday, I checked my automatic um, account on, on the telephone, which I guess you're still able to do that. Now it's a lot easier with the cell phone and apps and things like that. But I heard the words, uh, checking account, $0.00, savings account, $0.00. And I called the bank immediately. I said, there's got to be some sort of mistake, you know, like the computer must be broken or something. So they called me back within a half an hour. They said, no, no, sir, um, your wife came into the branch oh. and took every penny out of your account oh. and moved it into her own account. Oh, my yeah. goodness. That's yeah. awful. So not a happy story, but it just. That brought me back. That was in that was in um, nineteen. No, that was yeah, nineteen ninety three. Wow. Well, I so mean, that with, takes me back quite a few years. With inflation, zero dollars back then would probably be pretty close to zero dollars now. Frank, that's an awful story. I hate hearing that. I I, I hope things are going better for you now, financially and maritally. No, things are much better. Things Good. are much better now. I got over that. That you know. But it just brought to mind that whole scenario that you, you spoke of, and you said you had never gotten 0.00. You know, there's always, like, some money kicking around somewhere, right? exactly. Right? You know, I'm surprised your wife didn't leave you, like, five bucks or something. This way, I mean, Yeah, no. Um, <sighs> yeah, that, that, and that's not even the worst part of it. When I came home from work that day, I was, like, in shock, okay? And I saw my wife. She was, she was outside the front of our house gardening, and I said to myself, now, I, I know what the bank had just said to me on the phone like a few hours earlier, and here she is outside. So I walked up to her, and I said, you know, I called the bank, and there's like no money in my account right now. And she said, yeah, I, I took it, and we're going to take every cent you've got. Me and my lawyer are going to take every cent you've got. Oh, and it's like somebody hit me in the gut with a baseball bat, really. Oh, and that... that was even worse than hearing the initial news. <laughs> Oh, Frank, that breaks my heart. Uh, I am so sorry to hear that. Um, uh, I'm, I'm sure, you know, this. it's, it's a probably a, a story that a lot of people could tell. It's just that, you know, I don't know why I even decided to call. No, I'm glad you did. I think that. a lot of folks can relate. Frank, I'm glad you're doing okay now. I'm glad you uh, were able to roll with the punches and, uh, and, and, and come out a better man for it, I'm sure. That is rough. At least I have nobody but my own profligate spending habits to blame. And my seven-month-old son, who has some profligate spending habits of his own, too. But, uh, I, uh, you know, oh, that is – talk about a kick in the gut. Wow. 800 – you know, when a marriage goes south, th- these are the kind of stories you hear. I hate to hear stories like that. I mean, uh, oh, jeez. Uh, that's even scarier than fireworks. 800-848-9222. Ellen is in the Queens. Hello, Ellen. Hi. Can you hear me okay? Perfectly, Ellen. Great. Oh, I was just listening to the guy's uh, story about uh, what happened to his money and his wife, and I'm thinking that is the coolest thing a person can do. What has happened to this generation with this pe- the people in this world right now? I mean, you don't do that. But anyway, I, I really called to talk about the fireworks. Sure. Um, let's see. I think that people have to exercise wisdom with that like they do with everything. 
And what it, what that means is if you live in a neighborhood where you live in little houses in, the, in, in Queens or in Brooklyn, the houses are close together. And maybe if you have the kind of fireworks that you can buy, buy in a Walmart far, you know, if you have a car and you drive out and you get these little packages that people, you know, families buy for their backyard and their kids. You know, I, I know my daughter and her husband, they they have, I've gone to their house, you know, for Fourth of July, and they have those little packets. They're very, you know, they're convenient. You buy them, and they're safe. They're very safe, and they're very fun. Now, if you use those in, in your backyard, you know, in Brooklyn or Queens, then that's okay. But if you use, like, where we live, um, you know, um, I, you know, we'll, we'll it, like last Fourth of July, we saw a lot of people with their fireworks going off up, up into the sky and over people's roofs, and we were like, "Oh my goodness, those are too 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 big for the backyard." Stick with the things that are safe, that are legal, that are fun to do, but they they don't go way up. And you know, some of the cinders would come into you know land on. I, we were afraid it was going to land on our roof. So anyway. You know, and then if you live in Manhattan, of course, you can't use them at all. There's no place to use things, even the small things. You have to stick with sparklers and maybe little ground salutes if they still sell those things. I know when I was a kid, we had ground salutes and cherry bombs and little things you would just light up on the street and they go pop, you know. But it just depends on a lot of variables and a lot of different kinds of fireworks and where you live and just use your wisdom. I mean, people shouldn't have to be so policed like 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 five year old kids. What happened to our common sense, our decency, and even getting back to you know what um, the last caller talked about? Just just morals in general, just consideration. Well, you're and right. Wisdom. You're right about that, Ellen. And the thing with fireworks is, it really, even if 99 out of 100 people are all considerate of their neighbors and doing the right thing, it really only takes one joker to set off some fireworks and disturb everybody, uh, you know, if they want to behave in an irresponsible manner. Good points all, though, Ellen. Thank you. 800-848-WABC. Nick is in Weehawken. Hello, Nick. Hi, Frank. Uh, I just wanted to say that that guy with the terrible story about his high school sweetheart doing what she did to him, to me, there's really only one explanation, and that's that he was dating a narcissist. And... I actually just recently got out of a horrible relationship with a narcissist, and it turns out through researching it that so many people have been victims of being married to or dating narcissists who have trouble with their sympathy and their empathy, and they basically live a double life. And I guarantee you if you had a couple of specialists on, maybe a doctor or two that specialize in narcissists, you have a lot of callers who would be interested in listening to that, I bet you. Well, Nick, uh, that's interesting, and thank you for the call. My wife has occasionally called me a narcissist, so we did a segment maybe about eight eight or nine months ago on narcissism and had a really interesting guy on with a really weird voice from Great Britain, and he went through the the standard narcissist and what it's like and the difficulty of what it's like uh, to be in a relationship with a narcissist, and then my wife heard that segment, and then she came across not uh, not thinking that I was a narcissist anymore. And I've looked through different versions of the DSM-5 to see what personality disorder best fits me. And I no longer think that it's narcissistic personality disorder. I think it might be histrionic personality disorder. But I'm an amateur psychologist at best. I, I really am not qualified to diagnose my own neuroses. But let's say my my wife's initial 
designation of me as a narcissist was correct, if, God forbid, things ever went south between us, I would never think to go into her bank account and take all her money. That would be, it wouldn't even be on the list of the top 1,000 things that I would think to do. Uh, I mean, uh, it, that is a special type of monster. It's somebody that could do that. Now, again, it's easy for me to judge only hearing one side and being 5,000 feet away. Who knows? Maybe he was a bad husband and he was doing all sorts of nefarious things and the wife felt that it was owed to her. And you know what it is? It's these lawyers in divorce cases. It's these lawyers that get both parties worked up. I've seen that again and again, again and again. And it's a, it's a sad situation indeed. 800-848-WABC. We'll continue with your calls in a moment. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. WABC. New York on New York's Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. So I'm in the uh, kitchen getting myself a cup of coffee and some yogurt. Um, and, you know, we really are so blessed to be in a, at a radio station where they give us snacks like this. Most radio stations that I've worked at, you're lucky to get coffee. Um, and we have snacks that are plentiful. So I was getting some yogurt. And what I like to do, and you shouldn't, I shouldn't do this, but I, I put a little trail mix in the yogurt and mix it up. This way I get the protein of the yogurt, and then I still get a little extra little crunch from the trail mix and a little, little bit of sweetness. I know it's too much sugar, but, um, you know, it's what, what can I say? We all have our vices. So I'm in the I'm – I'm, I'm waiting for my coffee to brew, and I'm mixing the yogurt in the trail mix. And I look up at the television screen in the, in the office there, and they had on the Hannity program on the Fox News channel. Lo and behold – Hannity is doing a whole big thing on this Alec Baldwin, Woody Allen interview, and he's got these great clips. And I'm looking, and there's this clip of uh, Alec Baldwin screaming at a domestic worker in Spanish because Woody Allen keeps getting, you know, his uh, his uh, connection severed on the in the Instagram interview. And, and Alex happened to be Alex Barnard, who, if you missed yesterday's show. In spite of the fact that I asked him for this nine hours in advance, in a 45-minute interview, came to me with one clip, one clip from this interview. And Alex happened to be in there, and I pointed to him, I said, do you see this? Look, we could have had this a day ago. We would have been ahead of everybody. And then Hannity, the sound was off, so I couldn't see what he was saying. But it looked like a pretty interesting segment that they were doing, and that is exactly the kind of thing that I wanted to do uh, yesterday. But I, I watched, you know, I watched it last night. 
excuse me, the previous night before the show. But I was kind of rushed, and there's a lot going on here. So yesterday, during the day, while I was taking care of young Carmine, I watched this whole Alec Baldwin, Woody Allen interview beginning to end. And I have to tell you, I really enjoyed this interview. It really is great. I mean, Alec Baldwin is crazy. Woody Allen's probably crazy. Uh, I enjoyed the conversation about how times change and about movie making and about plays and about how the lockdown caused Woody to change his behaviors and about how this is probably his last movie. I enjoyed everything, everything about it. But to me, as I said yesterday, I think the funniest thing about it was that Woody clearly has never done an Instagram interview before, and he's having a lot of difficulty with it. Look, Woody's an 86-year-old man, and he's trying to get this computer to work, and the computer just won't work. And everybody in the world is just is just trying to help this fellow. But uh, it reminded me, in fact, of uh, when Stewie uh, from Family Guy is an older man, and he's trying to figure out how to work Skype. What is this? It's a Skype. A snake? No, a Skype. Snipe? No, it's a Skype from your grandson. Steven? Yes, he's right there trying to say hi to you. What movie is this? It's not a movie, it's your grandson. My grandson is in the pictures? You did this yesterday! Don't holler at me, I don't understand anything, I'm very frightened. That is a pretty good approximation of what it was like watching Woody Allen and Alec Baldwin, except with Alec Baldwin also screaming in Spanish at whatever the uh, domestic worker was in his house. It's a great interview. I've linked to it on my Facebook page, facebook.com slash Morano fan. But I think Facebook is suppressing it from being seen by people, maybe because they're both so controversial, because I don't think anybody really reacted. Nobody commented. Nobody clicked like or anything. So I'm thinking it, it, it got hidden from people's timelines. So if you want to see it, I think you're probably going to have to go to my page at Facebook.com slash MoranoFan and you could watch it. I thought it was interesting. But, uh, yeah. Oh, by the way, a follow-up to a segment that we did uh, a day or two ago on this vandalism on a Lee Zeldin sign. One caller called in. And and speculated that maybe this was done by someone with Lee Zeldin's campaign for attention. And I said, I'm not sure which is worse, if somebody would have faked it or if it was real. Well, the police have made an arrest. A 41-year-old Long Island man has been arrested on a charge of aggravated harassment as a hate crime for allegedly defacing this lawn sign. Vincent McKee was apprehended outside his Huntington home Tuesday afternoon. Um... For this Saturday vandalism. So he was charged with criminal mischief and we'll see what happens. So I don't imagine the police would have made an arrest here unless they had some credible evidence that this person was responsible for it. So uh, I think, um, look, it looks like it was not faked. Looks like this actually did happen. It might have been the handiwork of this guy, Vincent McKee, who lives in Huntington. We have some listeners in Huntington. This is no reflection on the good people of Huntington at all. Uh, this fellow, Vincent McKee, is in no way indicative of the people from Huntington. But watching that Alec Baldwin, Woody Allen segment, which I knew was going to be good, and and I knew we could have been on the cutting edge, it just made me even more disappointed with Alex Barnard. And the kind of the lame excuse he delivered, which is, oh, well, I got a lot of other shows to work on. Oh, oh, good. I'm glad to see where we rate 
in the pantheon of priorities. Oh, good. All right. You got a lot of other shows to work on. Uh, all right. Well, I guess uh, what am I bothering asking yada, for audio yada, eight yada. hours, eight hours in advance for? Yada, yada, yada. But it did also remind me, Matt Blaze, that when I came in to work last week, I think it was probably last Thursday. Yeah. Alex, he comes over to me to say something like really groundbreaking. And I think I, I'm, I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, have we switched formats? Has Not the again. show been canceled? Uh, uh, you know, is are we getting an extra day off? I, I don't know what he's going to say. Uh, has he been reassigned? Are we getting an extra? St- I don't know what he's going <laughs> to say. But he said, did you see what happened? I said, now I'm excited. I said, I said, no. What happened? He says, did you see they they replaced the bananas in the kitchen with plantains? I said, what are you talking about? Wow. I said, first of all, why are you this excited about this? And I said, Alex, are you sure those are plantains? And your response was what? Well, wait, wait, wait. He did the same thing to you before you respond, Alex. Avery's here. He did the same thing to you. He was excited about these plantains. Yeah, I told him these are not plantains. They're just unripened bananas. Right. So I said, Alex, I said, are you sure these are plantains? They look just like green bananas. And he said, oh, I guess we'll see. And so now that we've had a few days for these bananas to ripen, and like I think anybody that's ever seen a banana could probably have told us that these were actually bananas, not plantains. Now that we've had a, a few days to ripen, we can see that they are not plantains. They are in fact bananas. But there's been no there's been no retraction on your part. Well, first of all, three things. Uh, one, you're never. I know you're never going to get uh, over the Woody Allen. That's thing. right. Yes. Yeah, I wish you would, but that's okay. Two, um, I wish your memory was as poor as mine. You know, I I had completely forgotten about that. And three, I don't know. I say I say stupid things when I'm tired. Look, they looked like they were plantains. I mean, they were longer than a normal banana, and they were fully green. <laughs> they were not. Yes, they were. They were green because they were. You know, well, what but, idiot buys unripe bananas anyway? I mean, come on. But now. why the level of excitement right. for plantains? Right. The, Even this if there is, were bananas or plantains, why this level of, did you see what they did? Because my life is not very exciting. Well, if wishes were horses, then beggars would ride. And if hearts were beaches, in yours, I'll tide. Until next hour, in the words of the great Bob Barker, help control the bet population. Have your dog or cat spayed or neutered. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Um, You know what I don't understand? So I went to a a wedding recently. Before that, I was at a graduation party slash, um, what was it? Graduation party slash christening. And really almost any party you go to at a catering hall or some sort of an indoor venue... 
there's basically one recreational activity for people, right? What is that? Dancing. Dancing. Now, I I don't know about you, but I I remember commenting after the graduation how loud I thought the, the music was at that party. And you can't have a conversation. I don't know about you. I don't like to dance. I don't. I, I um, you know, I'll do it. I'll do my song or two, especially if it's, you know, something that my wife is into. It's not fun for me at all. But uh, also at my brother's wedding. And, uh, the, you know, that's the indoor activity of choice. Dancing, dancing, dancing. I got to tell you, I don't do it. I, I don't like to do it. I feel awkward when forced to, to do it. And my stepmother is somebody, wonderful lady, but she's somebody that likes to pressure people into doing things that she thinks they'll have fun doing. So at both my brother's wedding and my, my cousin Sandy's wedding, she both times, multiple times, grabbed me and other people and brought us onto the dance floor and then when I would try and sneak away at any of these parties, and at the wedding it was really fun because the uh, the recent New Jersey wedding, because they had some outdoor games like uh, cornhole and outdoor Jenga and actually other recreational activities. She would bring me back onto the dance floor, and I just hate it. I just absolutely hate it. I do not understand for the life of me how we got to a place in society where we've decided that the best way to celebrate a happy occasion, be it a wedding, a graduation, a retirement party, is to play music so loud that people can't have a conversation over it and then have them gyrate and dance rhythmically. Now, if you're into dancing, that's great. I know a lot of people that are really into dancing. My sister Claudia, for instance, loves to dance. Great, great. I think if you like to dance, that's wonderful. But I feel like at all these parties, and there was a time, and I've gotten over this, there was a time when especially if I wasn't performing the ceremony, I would go to one wedding a year. And it's be, this dancing pressure was a big part of it. I don't like to dance, and I don't feel like I should have to apologize for that. I'm of the belief that there should be alternative recreation at these parties. I'll tell you, when we had Carmine's baptism... And maybe some people weren't happy with this. We didn't do that. We didn't have dancing. We had a face painter for the children. We had, um, I think, a couple other things. But we had tables, right? We had music playing softly in the background. And then tables where people could talk with one another, right? And get to know the people around them. But I guess I'm unclear in how this whole dancing being the recreational activity of choice at parties began. And I'm wondering what can be done about it. Now, I, as a a party thrower on that one occasion, did something about it. I went and had alternative activities. In this case, the alternative activity was eating, drinking, and conversation, which I'll take any day of the week. But I'm in the minority. So how do we stem that tide? Are there other, I'll call them, Um, dancing non-enthusiasts out there. Can we band together? Is there a place that we can go to? You know how, like, swingers go to these secret sex clubs? Are there secret clubs that we can go to for non-dancers? 
Because I remember even back when I was a younger guy, uh, you know, my friends would be really into going into these hip nightclubs that were really tough to get into. And it was a status symbol, just being able to get in there. And it's great to go in there, but then it's the same situation like at all these parties. It's impossibly loud music and an enormous amount of pressure to dance. I don't get it. I don't want to get it. If you want to dance, that's great. But I think all these parties, you remember back when smoking was a thing that you could do at restaurants or or even on airplanes? There would be a smoking section and a non-smoking section. I really think if you're going to have a raucous affair and you're going to spend all this money on food and drinks and flowers and decorations and a photographer and a videographer, you want your guests to have a good time. And the bottom line is, I think there are more people like me than folks realize. And I think that people that have these parties, you should have a dancing section. And you should have a, I don't know, I'll call it a civilian section. A section for the non-dancers where you could do other things. Maybe it's board games, right? How much fun would that be? You go to a party and, uh, you know, your, your wife goes to hang out in the dancing section. And then you go to the section where they play cards, or do puzzles, or play trivia. How fun does that sound? Instead, those that don't dance in the current climate are ostracized. They're treated as if they're a lackluster party guest somehow. They're pressured to participate, and if they don't want to participate, they have to sneak away until they're dragged back onto the dance floor by their stepmother. Am I the only one... 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC if you want to comment. Those of you are holding on other issues, I will get to you momentarily. There are two quick uh, alien-related stories that I have to get to before we we move on to other things. By the way, we're going to talk about the Green River Killer coming up in just a bit. It's the 20th anniversary of, um, of his arrest. So we're going to get into that in a uh, big way. So uh, actually, there's three quick stories that I want to try and bring to your attention. I'll try to do so quickly. But uh, this is Alien Central. This is a show where we cover the alien situation at great length. This is this comes to us from the U.S. Sun headline War of the Worlds. Air Force regularly fires at UFOs in war zones. Service member reveals after military's 11 near misses bombshell. The U.S. Air Force is from the U.S. Sun. The U.S. Air Force has fired at UFOs in active war zones. An active duty service member exclusively told the Sun. Now, this contradicts what military officials told Congress during May's historic public hearing on UAPs. And their impact on national defense. The This is a quote. The Air Force routinely observes, routinely observes, and at times even kinetically engages UAP in operationally sensitive areas around the world to this day. That's a a service member with direct knowledge of the recent UAP Air Force engagements. This is a quote. While some UAP are eventually identified, makes sense, others are hastily dismissed outright 
due to an inability to properly classify based on characteristics displayed and observed. During the hearing, one of the witnesses, uh, Scott Bray, we covered him at the time, uh, was asked about the military firing at UFO, U, excuse me, UAPs. Uh, this was a question that the congressman asked Scott Bray. And I assume we've never discharged any armaments against a UAP, correct? That's correct, Bray responded. Then the issue was dropped, which didn't sit well with Jeremy Corbell, who you remember we had on that night. He's an investigative filmmaker who was the only civilian named during the congressional hearings on UFOs. He said in um, in a previous interview that the U.S. and other countries have fired on UAPs regularly with an increased frequency. Well, this story in The Sun by Christopher Eberhardt would seem to bear that out. So think of it what you will, but uh, that's where we are. That's UAP story number one. Number two comes to us from the Daily Mail. Headline. Their presence alone is a serious national security uh, issue. Dozens of sailors confirm their warships were swarmed by at least 100 otherworldly UFOs as their accounts contradict a Navy chief's effort to dismiss them as drones. The naval crew have told documentary filmmaker Jeremy Corbell that U.S. warships were swarmed in 2019 by at least... we got to try and get Jeremy Corbell on uh, next week. I'm going to reach out to him again. At least 100 UFOs with unexplained capabilities. These uh, Last year, Corbell published those videos from the warship incidents that set social media ablaze, and those were authenticated by the Pentagon. This is the last one I'll mention, and then we'll move on. Um, this is from the New York Post. Headline, NASA image of crashed UFO on the moon spurs conspiracy theories. Now, I'll be honest, I'll link to this on my Facebook page. You can look at it and see if uh, you think there's anything to this. I actually don't think there's anything to this, but uh, you can look at the image yourself. I just linked to it, facebook.com slash Moranofan, and tell me what you think. But NASA has shared images of an unidentified space crash, uh, spacecraft that crashed into the moon. The snaps, which were captured by the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, reveal that the impact left an unusual crater on the far side of the moon. These images sent uh, what the New York Post calls conspiracy theorists wild on social media, with some labeling them as proof of alien activity. However, there's a far simpler explanation. The divot was left by an out-of-control rocket. So astronomers discovered the rogue planet part, excuse me, the rogue rocket part late last year as it hurtled towards a lunar collision. They believe that the school bus size hunk of metal hit the rocky satellite surface in the early hours on March 4th. The origins of the rocket do remain a mystery. It was first thought to belong to SpaceX, but was later pinned on uh, China's space agency. So we don't know what this is from. But I don't think this is proof of anything alien. But I've just posted the image. If you have a different view, you can look at it, facebook.com slash Moranofan, and make your own decision. 800-848-9222. Samuel is in the Bronx. Hello, Samuel. Hello. Hello. 
Um, I would agree uh, separating uh, the dancers, um, but uh, you're, you're talking about grinders, or you're talking about uh, like West Coast swingers. I, I'm talking about whatever, what, what, whatever. I mean, I'm just saying there should be something at these parties for people that don't want to dance. Whatever the type of dance is, maybe it's uh, maybe it's square dancing, maybe it's a foxtrot, maybe it's grinders. Whatever the type of dancing is. There are some people that just don't want to do it. I mean, and I don't know how you feel, Samuel, but when I'm up there, I feel very awkward and uncomfortable and self-conscious. Uh, and I end up just snapping rhythmically with the move, the music and trying to move my feet enough so that nobody pays too close attention to me. Um, well, I, I do dance. I do. Uh, I, I would I would like to dance uh, Carolina Shag or West Coast Swing, but I don't particularly you know, grinders or people who, uh, you know, aren't, or, you know, aren't necessarily dancing. Um, yeah, I guess I, I would, uh, you know, or it kind of, it kind of makes it a strange, uh, uh, situation. Well, it is what it is. Thank you, Samuel. Xavier's in Manhattan. Hey, Xavier, uh, Alex Barnard and I were in your place a couple of weeks ago. Did your brother tell you? My brother Billy told me. How was it? It was great. Although you told me there was going to be a bottle of Blanton's, and I ordered a Blanton's, and there was no Blanton's. Well, I told you when I'm working, there's a bottle ah, of I see. Okay. All right. All right. The, I didn't realize the Billy loophole to the Blanton's offer was uh, was in effect, oh, but okay. Know, and the thing is, if I put it out there with my brother, nobody's going to get a sip. <laughs> I get it, but I will tell you, um, I was very pleased that this radio station was on the entire time that we were in there. That was cool. When, when were you there? Early in the morning? Yeah, we went right at we went around eight o'clock, right eight thirty, nine o'clock, maybe. And of course, we were listening to the number one show in the morning, Sid Murray. That's right. That's right. Hey, I told you, hey, we're cleaning up the bar right now, and people go. You know what the best part is? People go, you got that on? I go, why? You have a problem? <laughs> and do the, does anybody ever leave? Oh, no, but, you know, they get, I go, if you, hey, I tell them, if, uh, if 77 WABC on your radio, your radio ain't on. That's right. Well said. Well, let's get back to your dancing problem. Do you realize when women see guys dance, they imagine how they would be in bed? Well, that's that's exactly what I don't want them imagining. In my case, well, Xavier. Well, thank goodness you have a wife and you have that beautiful little baby. Because <laughs> God knows where you'd be without it. Exactly. You're exactly right, Xavier. Hey, so, yes. Where's your soul, bro? Where's your soul? I, you know, the, most of my soul is limited to the fish that I order, the fillet of. That's very good. But if you spend more time dancing than you did worrying about UFOs, I guarantee you would change your whole life. Uh, you, maybe you're right. Maybe you're right, Xavier. Yeah, not for me. Not for me. Matt, where are you on the dancing issue? Now, I, again, I know where you are because it, it involves socializing and interacting with people and, at, you know, in a, in a fun environment, which I know is not necessarily your thing. But, um, but give me your take on dancing. I was a DJ for 20-some-odd right. years. I'm aware of that. I love dancing. You do? I'm an excellent dancer. Wow. You know who else is, and this may surprise people? Curtis is an excellent dancer. He does. He talks about it all the time yeah. right? on, the, on the disco. Yeah. When he went to 2001 Odyssey in the <laughs> 70s. Disco Inferno. That's right. But I think, I mean, honestly, you sound like the guy in Footloose. 
That's right. I, I'm trying you to sound band like dance. That's right. And I, I, that's right. You want to band I'm, I'm, dance? Best thing, uh, best thing Giuliani ever did is enforcing those cabaret laws. No dancing anywhere. Uh, Laura is in Queens. Hello, Laura. Yes, hello. I love your show. You have some great segments um, regarding fireworks. Not a fan. I was delighted when Giuliani put the kibosh on that. You know, it's so polluting. And, I mean, it's like a haze of gunfire after, and they leave a mess. And it's very dangerous here in Queens because the, the houses are older. They're often wooden. And uh, and I remember my dad, who was who was a police officer and at the time in Bed-Stuy, some little kid blew his finger off. Ah. He found the finger. Talk about Johnny Depp, you know, long before. Yeah, it, it's it's very dangerous. I don't know about laser shows. You know, it, it, wouldn't that be nice? But I know they're expensive, but it should be left to the professionals, in my humble opinion. But as far as your dancing problem, I'm with you. I am a non-dancer. I'm a singer, but not a dancer. Uh, you know, so, I, I can uh, tell you're a singer. You have a nice uh, voice. Oh, that's very kind of you. That's very sweet. But, you know, my, and your beautiful little boy, you know, Italians are typical of no boundaries at these things. Ah, go up and dance. you got to go on a dance. What's all right with you? Go on and dance. But, um, no, not a, not a fan of that. You know, I do want to tell you something, Mr. Morano. There's a gentleman who you might be very interested in interviewing. He's a physicist and a scientist. He's worked with NASA, JPL. He had some very interesting interactions with um, uh, I, I will call them UFOs, U, uh, UAPs. His name is Bel Bruno, Edward Bel Bruno. Fascinating guy. Uh, might be interesting for you to, to look into it because you. It's a great I love idea. Your paranormal segment. I will. Yeah. Uh, I will reach out to him. Actually, that is yeah, a. Yeah, uh, he's a mathematician as well. Yes. I will yes, reach out to yes. him. That's a great suggestion. Yes. Thank you, Laura. And he's a great, great guest. Yes. And God bless you. And good luck with little Carmel. Oh, I'm so happy for your little boy too, and your wife. You have Thank a beautiful family. You're very kind. Thank All you right. very much, Be Laura. Well. 800-848-9222. Chris in the Catskills has been patiently holding. Hello, Chris. Good morning, Frank. Uh, May of 2015, there was a proliferation and expansion of fireworks available over-the-counter sales. And so there was a county opt-in. So there was a vote in my legislature. I voted against it. It was a 15 to 8 vote. And uh, my visceral response was to vote for it. And then I started doing my due diligence. I'm reading emails. One of my colleagues in the Democratic caucus, very progressive woman, was citing the uh, fire chiefs associations around New York State saying urging us not to vote for it. So then, you know, get a letter from a, a fireworks company in Youngstown, Ohio. I called the guy, the vice president of the company, had a long talk with him, and I changed my vote from doing my due diligence. Yeah. And the way the votes came down, you wouldn't think it, but out of 13 Democrats, 10 Democrats voted for it. Three voted against it. Out of 10 Republicans, it was split, five and five. And out of the three Democrats, I'd like to think it was the most conservative Democrat, ex-Republican. There was the most liberal, progressive Democrat. And there was the most logical Democrat, me, that all voted against it. I think fireworks should be left up to professionals. I'm with you, Chris. The- Thank you. You know what I like about Chris from the Catskills? He is the Alex Barnard of callers, right? It's like whatever we're talking about, somehow he finds a way to make himself the the center of that story. Right. Alex Barnard, we're doing a story about Lee Zeldin uh, being text messaged by 
um, by uh, Harry Wilson. And then Alex Barnard finds a way to say, well, I went to school with that Ben Wiener. My grandmother's sister's cousin knows Lee Zeldin. Right. Exactly. He is the Chris in the Catskills of uh, of callers. If he were a politician, he would be Chris in the Catskills. In fact, I'm not convinced he's not Chris in the Catskills. You don't see them in the same place at the same time usually. No, no, no. In. Wait a minute. Are you exactly. saying are you saying that I am a narcissist, Frank? Are you accusing no, no, me of no, narcissism? No. I, I'm I'm saying you're you're I, I don't know what I'm saying. I'm saying both of you, I think, if you're not mm. the same person are mildly self-centered in that mm. every single story is is somehow about you. See, if Chris in the Catskills is reading through the news and he sees, all right, the Supreme Court wraps up its term Thursday and there are two key decisions still to be announced. All right, he would say, well, I'll tell you, I, I was actually at the Supreme Court. My county legislature was at the Supreme Court and we we had an audience with the Chief Justice. I told the Chief Justice, I think what you're doing is inappropriate. He said to me, you're right. He thanked me. And after that, they uh, they they struck hmm. down uh, whatever some some obscure law, uh, you know. Um, R. Kelly sentenced to thirty years in prison. I tell you, I watched that R. Kelly documentary, and we passed an ordinance in our county because of uh, the work. The, what I saw in that documentary, Frontier Airlines CEO opens up about Spirit merger. Well, I've flown Frontier and I've flown Spirit. I, I tell you, after doing both. I actually introduced a resolution with my local county boss saying that there shouldn't be airline mergers like the one that Frontier is trying to do with Spirit. That's why you got to go out and vote for Kevin Cahill, and he's not a good campaigner. And then he—that's he, it's a very Christian the Catskills. And then, you have to, and then you have to end that with because I'm an elect. I was that, an elected that, that's official. That's right. We'd forgotten, Chris. We forgot that you were an elected official. It's like um, you know, it's like John Kerry. You remember when he was running for president? Every other sentence was about how he had served in Vietnam. And, and so it got to the point where, it, like, you have to ask, all right, oh, John Kerry, he said something. By the way, did he serve in Vietnam? Curtis is unable to complete three sentences in a row without mentioning his shooting, that he was shot. By the way, Curtis, were you shot? You know, there used to be a councilman, now I think he's just a lawyer, up in the Bronx, Oliver Coppell who was briefly the attorney general, briefly. I mean, uh, Chris from the Catskills might have been the attorney general longer than Oliver Coppell was. Yet, if you ever talk with Oliver Coppell or heard him give a speech, within 40 seconds, he would mention that he was the attorney general. Nobody remembers him as the attorney general. Nobody could tell you anything he did as the attorney general. But he found a way to always mention that he was the attorney general. Speaking of Alex Barnard, uh, Igor in Fairfield has a comment about the Woody Allen interview. Hello, Igor. Hey there, Frank. Hey, listen, I, I watched the whole interview, and I think one of the things I was very surprised at is how raw it was. It really wasn't edited. In the beginning, they were fumbling. You could see him, again, y- you know, yelling at the at the woman in Spanish. I, I thought that was kind of funny because it sort of proved that, I guess, Hilaria is at least maybe from Spain or she's more Spanish. But um, I thought it was an extraordinary interview, and I know yesterday you had said, why would, why would they even do it with each other? But these guys are sort of two broken guys, and they, they knew they weren't going to touch each other's wounds. I, I thought that it kind of made sense for the both of them. Well, no, I do, too. I mean, I, I said I kind of give them credit because they clearly neither of them cares what anybody thinks. And that is sort of refreshing in the, um, you know, in this day and age. Uh, it makes sense, Igor. But, yeah, I like the low tech nature of it uh, with everything. So 
so polished and uh, high tech these days. You know, I, I do like that it was kind of rough. I, I like that. 800-848-WABC. Hey, Leo on the Upper East Side has been waiting a while. Hello there, Leo. Hello, Frank. Uh, in the discussion about the fireworks, I think you're forgetting, forgetting one important aspect. Probably half of the adults going to the professional fireworks like Macy's display or losing fingers in the backyard doing it for kids. I was for years living on Upper East Side, and every year with my little daughter going to the Roosevelt Island, uh, looking on the Macy's, which is, by the way, uh, like display of abstract art, that is the thing. Then I, 15 years ago, of course, kids are big already. I moved to Westchester, and there's uh, so many minorities who start shooting week before 4th of July and still shooting week after 4th of July, so I hate it now. But as a, for kids... For years, I was going every year excited for the kids. Well, like I said, I guess it is an exciting thing for children. Maybe once children reach a certain age. What would you say, Leo, the prime age for children to enjoy fireworks is? What is it, five, six, seven? No, probably between three and, and school age. Oh, really? So between like three and six, yes, you'd magical say? magical mystery, kind of. Okay. Frank, I have one more comment. Sure. I was on a wedding where there was a... As a part of the wedding, there was a table with a roulette, and people was actually betting, and all the proceeds from the betting and from the thing was going to the newlywed. You're kidding. I love that idea. Yes. Well, I, yes. that's a couple that I want to be friends with. Are they still married? Oh, this is a long time ago in Europe. I don't know. That is a very creative idea. I love that, Leo. Thank you very much for the call. Thanks for sharing that. Um, you know, so I'm seeing that the son of Ferdinand Marcos is going to be sworn in as the president today. Ferdinand, Ferdinand Marcos Jr., the son of the former Philippine dictator. I'm sure we'll hear about it later from uh, Ralph in New Jersey, who's formerly of the Philippines. Uh, you may not know, but Chris and the Catskills actually ran against Ferdinand Marcos back in uh, 1986. And he lost, but uh, but that... Um, he won the OTB on the Working Families Party line. He was able to wrest control of that Working Families Party line from Ferdinand Marcos. And they think that the fact that he lost so much momentum, that he lost that minor party line, it actually helped precipitate Ferdinand Marcos's downfall. Because, as Matt Blaze will tell you, Chris from the Catskills was an elected official. 800-848-9222. Hey, we're going to talk about the Green River Killer in just a moment, but Wilson in Newark has been holding a while. Hello, Wilson. Wilson. All right, Wilson's got other priorities. Uh, we'll talk with Robert Twilley about his new documentary. It's called Sins of the Father. I just watched it. It's terrific. All about the Green River Killer. Really chilling in some respects. We'll tell you about it straight ahead. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC. side of midnight i'm frank morano well it was about uh, 20 years ago that uh, the green river 
killer, Gary Ridgway, was arrested. Now, I must tell you, I really don't know. I, I did not know much about the Green River Killer, but he is apparently the second most prolific serial killer in the history of the United States. He led a fascinating life. His crime spree was absolutely chilling. And it's all explored in a new documentary called Sins of the Father, The Green River Killer, which is available on Tubi, T-U-B-I. And the executive producer of that documentary is a distinguished documentary filmmaker, Robert Twilley, who joins us now. Robert, thanks so much for coming on the radio with me. Thank you for having me. So for people that have not heard the term Green River Killer before, Robert, who exactly was the Green River Killer? What did he do? Uh, Gary Ridgeway um, in the 1980s and 90s was a, uh, an active serial killer in uh, the Northwest, uh, in the Seattle area, uh, the Seattle, uh, Tacoma, the SeaTac area. Um, he uh, targeted um, a, a lot of uh, prostitutes and people who were uh, on, the, on the margins of society. They were easy prey for him, and uh, he was uh, head of the other at least 49 victims uh, uh, from the 80s and 90s. It's uh, believed, though, that he may have uh, killed as many as 90. Um, and this is a time You said when, 90? You know, nine zero? 90. Yeah, correct. Yes. Uh, uh, after after capture, uh, to uh, be spared the death penalty, he agreed to cooperate with police in, in trying to discover uh, grave sites that hadn't been found. Um, he dumped all of the the bodies that um, of his victims in in around the Green River, which is what gave him his uh, uh, name, the the Green River Killer. And where was the Green River? I'm sure it was in Washington State, but where specifically? Yeah, it's, it near it just near Seattle in Keene, Washington. Gotcha. Okay. And what attracted you to this project? What sparked your interest in the Green River Killer? Well, we've you know I think serial killers are. Uh, you know, we have a fascination with them. Uh, it, it allows us to explore sort of the, the darkest side of, of, of humanity. And in, in this particular case, you, know, you think of serial killers often as these loners who are, um, you know, just killing and, and are, you know, isolated from uh, the world. Here's a, a man who had somewhat of a, a double life. He was married three times um, and had a son. And that's where uh, you know, the, the, the title uh, "Sins of the Father" comes from. Is that we were interested in exploring, mm. you know, uh, that a person who was not only this vicious killer, but who would also, uh, in some respects, was was seen as a family man, um, and that um, was just a, a very curious thing. You know, you, you see serial killers like Jeffrey Dahmer or um, Kemper, who were, were very much loners. Uh, here's an example of one who was, um, in some respects, kind of integrated in, into society, uh, had held a job, um, and was able to elude capture for, uh, you know, decades. Yeah. And so um, it was just, it was, it was ripe with a lot of um, nuance for us to explore as, uh, as filmmakers. 
All right, uh, talking with Robert Twilley, executive producer of the documentary Sins of the Father. It is available on Tubi. We'll tell you how to watch it in just a moment. But uh, just to give you a, a, a little snippet of what you're in store for if you watch this documentary, here's the trailer. Now, I'd love to tell you it loses something by not having the visual element, but not that much. Listen to the words. Listen to the news reports. Listen to the trailer for Sins of the Father, The Green River Killer. Just loved killing women. When I started killing, I just kept on killing. Police found the badly decomposed nude body of a woman Saturday night. Another terrible discovery in the woods. The victims of the Green River Killer. The number of bodies that are turning up is almost hard for us to even wrap our head around. He was incredibly successful at convincing the world that he was just a nice guy and a good family man. I saw my dad every other weekend camping and fishing. He'd always be there for me. His dad really went the extra mile to make all the time memorable and special. He used the illusion of his family to lure his victims. He could separate the two worlds he lived in in a way we'd really never seen before. It's a whole different layer of disgusting. The public was running out of patience. It was like, come on, catch this guy. He's, you know, one guy one minute, another guy the other minute. I'm saying, stop moving and I'll let you go. But I wasn't going to let her go. Gary's son, Matthew, couldn't fathom this man, the man he knew, the man he loves, being the Green River Killer. He really thought he was the best serial killer out there. He'll do was kill, kill, kill. You killed one of the girls when Matthew was with you, right? Yes, I did. If he had observed you kill one of the women, would you have killed him? I mean, wow. Doesn't that give you chills? Uh, talking with Robert Twilley. Robert, uh, there's a lot of focus in the trailer and throughout the documentary on this double life that Gary Ridgway seemed to be uh, leading. You mentioned his, um, you know, b- being a reputable father and that it, how even his son didn't suspect anything. What was he like in terms of the, the community? The, in the clip that we played there, someone references the Simpsons neighbor, Ned Flanders. Th- was this a regular pillar of the community, somebody that was very integrated? I don't know that you would say a pillar of the community necessarily. I mean, he, he struggled with with his relationship, married three times. Um, he did um, uh, hold on to his, his, his religion. He was, you know, uh, a, a church attender, uh, read the Bible, um, and, 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 and tried to, I think, in some ways reconcile uh, that faith with, um, you know, this dark side he had but uh he did have uh a presence in his son's life uh that's that's um uh revealed and depicted in in our in our documentary um but he was um uh a, he struggled with his relationships we we interview uh a coworker who could who could relay how he could change in a, in a minute, his, uh, his outlook is, you know, he had flashes of, of anger. And so mm. I don't know that he was that well adjusted, but he did mask this really dark side, uh, very well. 
You alluded to his marriages. I know um, you speak with his wife in the in the uh, in the documentary. What did his wife have to say about what he was like as a husband and what, if any, problems his anger may have led to in their relationship? Right. Yeah, the uh, the the interviews with uh, ex-wives were uh, sourced from police files. I just ah, want to clarify that we weren't Thank able you. to. Yeah, we we um, we 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 do try to to connect with uh, uh, with our with those contributors, but also respect their desire to be removed from the the story at this point. But uh, um, I think they um, you know they they spoke about you know uh, how he was. Uh, you know, could be loving at times. He did have, um, you know, strange or very uh, rough sexual um, fantasies and desires that that um, I think complicated uh, marriages. Uh, his last wife was completely clueless to his um, uh, activities and was just floored when he was finally uh, arrested for his crimes. Yeah, I mean, it seems like uh, this is not one of these people when he was arrested. Everyone said, oh, yeah, we saw that coming. We knew there was something a little off. This was somebody that uh, nobody suspected of being the Green River Killer that he was interacting with regularly. Well, yeah, I mean, there there were some um, near misses over the years. There were, you know, a number of suspects that were vetted by by police. One uh, that was you know, pursued quite closely who, who seemed to have... Um, a lot of knowledge about uh, the crimes. Uh, it turned out he had nothing to do with them. Um, uh, but uh, Gary was, um, you know, able to elude capture for uh, you know, decades. Um, he he did um, have a visit from a, a cop on one occasion who was, um, you know, his truck had been seen uh, by someone who had a tip, um, and th- that lead went nowhere. Um, at one point, he did submit to a polygraph. He passed it. Um, it really wasn't until the emergence of DNA evidence that uh, an arrest could be made. Mm, wow, that is absolutely incredible. Tell me a little bit more about what his son had to say about he was what what he was like as a father. Well, I mean, they they had it was a he, they divorced his mother uh, divorced Gary uh, early in. Uh, Matthew's life, but Matthew spent time. They they had time as um, on weekends. They saw each other at holidays. Um, you know, they had you know, in many respects, what you would consider a typical uh, father son relationship: playing catch in the backyard, going out uh, camping trips. Hmm. Um, you know, the one of the the saddest and, and most troubling uh, discoveries that we had was that. Uh, Matthew was actually present for uh, at least one of his father's murders. He wasn't aware that it was going on, but uh, uh, it, it seems likely that um, Gary used his son uh, to lure uh, at least one of his victims. That, that he was, you know, if, if he's if he's with his son, he's not going to be um, someone who might harm me. How um, how old was his son at the time that that occurred? The murder in the, um, with I, Matthew I think present, it's, um, you know, five or six, I believe. That's uh, absolutely amazing. Uh, we're talking with Robert Twilley. He is the executive producer of this new documentary, "Sins of the Father: The Green River Killer." 
in, in this documentary, you explore a bit uh, another interesting fellow by the name of Melvin Foster. Who's Melvin Foster, and uh, what role did he play in law enforcement ultimately making the arrest of the Green River Killer? Well, he was um, it, at one time a, a prime suspect in the um, in the case. He was a taxi driver in the in that SeaTac near the you know, Seattle Tacoma Airport where uh, many of the victims were um, picked up initially. Uh, he knew several of the victims. He had actually reached out, uh, claiming to have some information about the killings, and and then became. Uh, a, a suspect um, that they were pursuing quite um, quite closely, and ultimately they could not make anything um, a stick. They uh, at one point, uh, undercover cops bought a car that he was selling, and they discovered um, uh, you know, pornographic magazines and, and and other evidence they thought might um, uh, link him with the with the crimes. So there was never any uh, connection made there. Uh, and he was, um, you know, a, a a dead end for them. Uh, it was very frustrating for the for the task force that was assembled. I mean, there was a task force that uh, came together to to try to um, catch this killer, and, and they were unsuccessful for for many years. As I said, it was um, uh, the emergence of DNA that that finally uh, led them to an arrest. And, you know, you mentioned that this took place over the course of decades, the 80s and the 90s, and possibly as many as 90 victims killed by uh, Gary Ridgway. How was he able to get away with this for so long? I mean, I would think, you know, all right, you get away with one murder, two murders, 10 murders, 12 murders, 30 murders. But to get away with possibly as many as 90 murders as long as he did, how was he able to do that? Yeah, well, he was on and off the, the police's radar for, um, for for many years. He did submit to a polygraph at one point, passed it. Um, he did prey on um, on the vulnerable. Uh, he um, sourced his victims from the uh, streets. Uh, many of the um, many of them were sex workers, um, and they're. Some, in some cases, their disappearance wasn't uh, immediately picked up on. Um, he did dispose of most, if not all of them, in and along the Green River. And so it is shocking to think that uh, he could have eluded capture for so long. Um, but uh, he, I think, knew that he knew his victims uh, well, and he knew, I mean, not personally well, but he, he knew where to find um people that wouldn't necessarily be missed immediately. What was his profession? Uh, he worked at the uh, Kenworth Truck Factory. He's, mm. a, uh, I believe, a painter uh, in the in the factory. And um, you mentioned that DNA ultimately proved to be his downfall. But specifically mm-hmm. how? How were, how were the police able to use DNA to determine that he was responsible for these murders? Well, they, they gathered DNA evidence from some crime scene. There was some, uh, in particular, some semen at one crime scene that was uh, initially used uh, for uh, blood type uh, in, in confirming um, you know, some some key evidence in the case. But that the DNA testing was not um, uh, at the time of its discovery wasn't um, involved enough to allow to make those kind of uh, connections. And it was uh, it wasn't until 
uh, his arrest in um, in actually 2003 that um, there was uh, you know the the, the you know, that they were able to to test and, and confirm that uh, he was the, um, the the killer. And do we know? I know he ultimately pled guilty to 48 of these murders. Do we know? Has he said what his motive was in killing these women? Was it sexual? Was he turned on by killing these women? Would he rape them prior to murder? What? Why would he do this? Well, there was definitely uh, sex, um, uh, whether it was consensual or uh, rape. Um, I, I'm not. I'm not certain, but he was. He, he certainly had, from an early, um, early in life. Um, a perverted view of women, uh, you know, that you, you, you trace things back to uh, your relationship with your mother in, 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 in many cases of, of these serial killers. Um, it, it seems that there was um, uh, from early life some uh, hatred of, of women that, that, that carried over into his adult life and, and, and fueled some of his, uh, uh, his, his killing rage. But um he was also um, a necrophiliac, um, so he enjoyed uh, revisiting his victims after they were dead. Wow. In um, it was a, a, a sexual uh, connection that he had. It was actually um, that connection was actually um, alluded to by Ted Bundy, another famous serial killer. Um, Bundy actually consulted with. The police on this case because he felt like he had some insight into how um, Gary was was operating. Uh, you, I mentioned that he had pled guilty to forty eight murders, and then ultimately, I think they were able to pin a forty ninth on him. But you indicated that uh, there were possibly as many as ninety victims here. What? Why the disparity there? Why were they only able to officially convict him of forty eight or forty nine murders? When he could have been responsible for up to forty more. Well, I, you know, some of that may be the killer's bravado, talking mm-hmm. about other victims. I, I just don't think that there was a, um, uh, you know, any connection to other uh, missing persons that that could be um, tied to him. I don't think that means that we will never know. Um, I think there's, um, you know. Unfortunately, discoveries every day that uh, that might uh, help clear up the that discrepancy. Um, but I uh, know the the forty nine are 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 certain, and in in just conversations with him, uh, uh, once he was in custody, um, he suggested that there might have been others. Wow. Uh, how can people watch this documentary? A lot of folks may not be familiar with Tubi. Is there a way that uh, if you don't get Tubi that people can just watch it on whatever system they have? Uh, Tubi is, is is everywhere. It's a, a free uh, streaming service, and so they, everyone should be able to, with an Internet connection, um, uh, watch. You can stream on your desktop. You can uh, – there's an app for television um, it's a, uh, a free streaming service, as I said, and it's, uh, it's live now and, and will be, uh, it's part of, uh, 2B's, uh, original documentary programming slate. Right. So people can just 
if they have a smart television, they could just download Tubi for free. Or if they don't, they can just go online uh, to wherever, any sort of Internet connection and just go to Tubi and uh, they can, it's T-U-B-I, and then watch this uh, documentary, Sins of the Father, The Green River Killer. Well, it's incredibly well done. My compliments, Robert. It's, uh, It's the kind of thing that you're left thinking about a long time after watching it. Well, thank you for having me tonight. I um, appreciate the opportunity to talk about it. Thank you. If you want to comment, you can do so. 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. WABC. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC. <laughs> if ever there was one. If you ever want to know what kind of music we play on this show, just join our Facebook group. Just search on Facebook, Morano Radio Fans and Haters. That's M-O-R-A-N-O Radio Fans and Haters. And uh, by the way, just one other quick follow-up to um, something that we were talking about yesterday. We mentioned how it looked like AOC slash DSA slash WFP Look like they lost almost all the assembly races. It looks today uh, that uh, the progressives won three. It looks like they won three seats uh, from incumbent assembly members. Uh, but uh, by and large, it was still on primary night on Tuesday, a very good day for the establishment. I am sorry to see Assemblyman Tom Abenanti go uh, in Westchester because he was uh, somebody that struck me as a very serious public servant and as someone that uh, took his job also very seriously. So I'm sorry to see him go. Uh, so my son Carmine was having a, you know, he's, he's usually, he's a very good boy. He has a very good temperament. He's uh, turning over now. He rolls over. He's not quite crawling yet, but I think, you know, we're getting there pretty closely. And it's funny when he turns over on his stomach, he doesn't like being on his stomach. So I'll put him on his mat on his back, and then he'll turn over and end up on his stomach, and then he'll realize that he's not crazy about it, and then he'll cry a little bit, and I'll move him back to his back, and then we kind of continue in that pattern for a while. But we put him to bed maybe around seven fifteen, seven thirty last night, maybe a little later, after we had dinner and cleaned him up a little bit, and um, 
he wouldn't stop crying. Would not stop crying. So the consensus that we've come to, my wife and I, is that uh, he's teething because he's got two teeth already, two teeth on his lower, you know, the lower front teeth. And he's probably developing others because he was very cranky in terms of going to bed. And then when when my wife or me would pick him up, he would he would stop. But then usually when we put him down, he'll cry for five minutes, maybe 10 minutes, and then eventually he'll fall asleep. That was not happening last night. He was staying up and, you know, crying and doing his thing uh, with respect to, you know, just not wanting to go to bed, even though we knew he was tired. So uh, one of the old wives tales that you always hear and uh, I think my grandmother was a big believer in this and I think this was the way they did things back then is that if a baby is teething you put some whiskey or some rum on their gums the theory being that that serves as kind of a numbing agent and just eases the pain a little bit so my wife is desperate at this point he's just not going to bed and I mean this is 45 minutes of him refusing to to sleep. He'll only stop when one of us will pick him up and hold him. And he's not hungry. We gave him a bottle and he's not, doesn't have an interest in the bottle. He just wants to be held, doesn't want to go to sleep. So we put him down. He screams, scream. So uh, my wife says to me, well, maybe you should put some rum on his gums. So I said, let me, you know, give a quick Google to this. Sure enough, there are pages and pages written on the history of using alcohol as a numbing agent on children's gums. And apparently the consensus now is you're not supposed to do it, that this does nothing good for them. It only gets them kind of drunk, which is not something you want to do for a seven-month-old. And it could even make the back of their throat kind of numb. That's why they even discourage Oragel. So I'm curious if anybody still does that alcohol for the gums. Email me. Until then, keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is the other side of midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. I can't believe we're still talking about Slapgate. But here we are, two days after uh, Mayor Rudy Giuliani, who uh, I've come to consider a friend, and certainly I've come to consider his son Andrew a, a friend. He claimed, he, who you could hear every every day, by the way, at 3 p.m., and then Sundays at 10 a.m., right after the Cats Roundtable here on WABC. He was at a supermarket on Staten Island Sunday, and then he, you know, was smacked on the back, at least that's what he said, by somebody that was upset upset with him, and they arrested this guy. So Tuesday morning, he was doing a Facebook broadcast. He said, my shoulder hurts like hell, and I've got a big lump on on the back, and I don't complain. Despite the video 
that quickly emerged showing that the supermarket worker that was arrested, it didn't look in the video. I'm not saying I'm not disputing the mayor's version of events because this was corroborated by a woman that was there with him, an eyewitness. But it didn't look on the video like a smack. So in spite of that video, the they they did arrest this guy and they are charging him not with a felony, but with a misdemeanor. And so Giuliani held fast to his version that he was attacked, that the city is going to hell in a handbasket, and only his son, a candidate for governor as of Tuesday, could make New Yorkers safe again. Then, <coughs> sorry, I, I'm uh, finishing a peanut M&M. I got the peanut part of it in the back there. Uh, then he gets into this back and forth with Mayor Eric Adams, where Eric Adams, the current mayor, says that Giuliani should be the one investigated for filing a false police report. And Giuliani basically told the New York Post, well, Mayor Adams can go F himself. And, you know, Rudy Giuliani is not one to hold back. And he said, look, I never filed a police report. Now, you'd think Eric Adams would come out the next day and say, you know, I'm not going to comment further. I'm going to leave this to the DA's office and to the police department to handle as they see fit. Or he could have said, you know, I didn't realize that the former mayor didn't hire a, pol- a, a, a I didn't file a police report, but I trust the judgment of the DA in Staten Island. Let them handle this as they see fit. Right. That's all he had to say. Issues over. Who's going to question you saying that? Instead, this is what the mayor, the, the current mayor said yesterday after saying the previous day that Mayor Giuliani should be prosecuted. This is yesterday. Think about what happened here. I, I don't know if many people really understand what happened here. The uh, former mayor made several serious allegations. He was, he was, it was reported. He was videoed saying things that happened. Those things did not happen. Because of his report to the police department, a person went to jail for 24 hours. I don't know if people know what it's like being in jail when you did not commit a crime. You never get over that. This person's life has been changed because of oh, please. what, as all of us saw, the pat on the back was not a punch to the head. It was not knocking someone to the ground. And I believe, just as we've done in other cases where Karen incident happened in Central Park uh, and other incidents, I believe the uh, DA should look at that and determine what the final outcome is. Now, okay, Um, the guy was held for 24 hours. The guy is still being charged with a crime. Uh, The fella's name that... uh, uh, taps Mr. Giuliani on the back. His name is Daniel Gill. Prosecutors downgraded the charges against Gill from second-degree assault, a felony, to third-degree assault, and second-degree harassment and third-degree menacing. Now, it's not like this guy didn't do anything wrong. He's still being charged with a crime. If Mayor Adams takes issue with the fact that this guy was held in custody for 24 hours, 
Well, you know, you know, it's like he has nothing to do with the criminal justice system in this city. You know, there was a rally that I attended. Um, I'm not sure if I attended it as a participant in the rally or as somebody covering the rally. I don't remember. This was about 17 years ago where there was a movement of activists. And whether I was covering it or participating in it, I agreed with their goal. They basically were trying to say that you should have to charge someone or release them within 24 hours. That if you're arrested in this city, you should be charged or released. Now, the fact that that's not being done in New York City, that's not Rudy Giuliani's fault. It's not the DA Mike McMahon's fault. If it's anybody's fault, it's Eric Adams' fault. How about you streamline the process of people being processed through the system? He was charged and released. So uh, this babe in the woods, Daniel Gill, this guy's life has changed forever. I I realize jail is unpleasant. I don't want to go. The guy's life has not changed forever. If anything, I think in some quarters he's going to be made into a celebrity because now it's um, it's trendy to be anti Rudy Giuliani. The guy's life has not changed forever. The guy is going to be just fine, even if he's found guilty of the misdemeanor charges that he's facing. No one forced this guy to go and uh, confront the mayor. Look, it's not a crime to call the mayor a name. Certainly not something you should be doing while you're working as a professional in a um, in a grocery store. But let's just calm things down a bit. I got to tell you. I really want to like Eric Adams. I do. And I didn't, you know, I didn't vote for him. I didn't campaign for him. But then every so often, he just goes so over the top. And it's like every other week, he does something to lose me. You know, it's when, remember, he called the press corps racist. Then he decides to appoint as his uh, sheriff a guy that was fined like crazy from the campaign finance board after paying himself with his own campaign funds a hefty sum of interest on a loan. And now this, this unnecessary fight with Rudy Giuliani over nothing. Anything that Eric Adams is saying here, anything that he's doing here, it will do nothing to make the city better. It will do nothing to reduce crime in this city. It does nothing to help Mayor Adams deliver on any of his substantial campaign promises, why do this? If you have thoughts, uh, even if they differ from mine, in fact, especially if they differ from mine, give me a call, 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. And uh, as the New York Times said, uh, Mr. Gill is certainly not lacking for advocates. Herman Waltz, a former New York City prosecutor and a an adjunct professor at John Jay College of Criminal Justice, said simply, there's no crime here. So there, there, there's his take. He said, I could punch you in the face and that wouldn't be physical injury in New York unless I broke your nose or something like that. Well, I got to tell you, Mayor Giuliani doesn't seem happy with the downgrading of the charges from the Staten Island DA. And the Staten Island DA, Mike McMahon, is up for election next year. 
And you know who's still really popular on Staten Island? Rudy Giuliani. If I were Mike McMahon, I would not go out of my way to alienate the former mayor. Because I heard the things that Mayor Giuliani was saying on air about Mike McMahon. If Rudy Giuliani chooses, I don't think he can run himself um, for Staten Island DA. But if he chooses to recruit a candidate against Mike McMahon next year and campaign and go all out against Mike McMahon next year, Mike McMahon's going to lose. He's a guy that already lost his congressional race. And um, when he was in Congress, and he's, I think he's done a pretty good job as DA on the whole. But if Giuliani decides to make this his cause and go all out against Mike McMahon, then forget about it. I think McMahon's going to have a very tough time. Additionally, McMahon's wife, Judy McMahon, is up for re-election as a state Supreme Court justice this year. And in an island-wide race. On an island where Donald Trump's very popular and where Rudy Giuliani's very popular. Can you imagine if if the Republicans choose to run someone against Judy this year? And I know Judy is hoping for a Republican cross-endorsement. Rudy could drive both of them from office, one this year, one next year. So um, I think this is going to be very interesting to see this case adjudicated. My take when I saw the video was that I didn't think it was a smack, I didn't think it was a slap, but I don't think the mayor's lying. If he says he's got these injuries and these pains, then um, I believe him. Uh, This woman that he's never met was an eyewitness. She was there standing next to him. She corroborated completely his version of events. So it could just be one of those things where the video didn't accurately depict what happened. But whether it did or it didn't, I'm content to let the criminal justice system run its course. But for Eric Adams to be playing the world's smallest violin for Daniel Gill, poor Daniel Gill, this victim of society and Rudy Giuliani, who's had to be, who was locked up for 24 hours. Boo hoo hoo. Nobody forced Daniel Gill to confront the mayor. The police made the determination to arrest him. Rudy Giuliani never filed a police report. Mike McMahon made the determination to initially charge him with a felony and then downgrade that to a misdemeanor. Rudy Giuliani didn't make that determination. So, Mayor Adams, if you've got an issue with Daniel Gill being locked up for 24 hours, I think the first people that you should take issue with is your own police department. And then the D.A. Um, Why you're choosing to make one of your predecessors the enemy here, it it makes no sense. Now, we know why he's doing it, as Dominic alluded to on his program. He's doing this for political purposes. Rudy Giuliani is not popular in the city as a whole these days. And Eric Adams, who has yet to fix a light bulb in this city, is trying to benefit politically from demonizing someone whose politics are not very popular at the moment. And uh, I I think it's just very low rent. It's very Bush League. And I would be very curious, not publicly, but privately. You know, privately, Eric Ulrich works for uh, Eric Adams. I think he's the commissioner of housing or something. Uh, I think that's the latest job that Mayor Adams has given Eric Ulrich. Rudy Giuliani campaigned... For Eric Ulrich, who had every single election Eric Ulrich ever had was a tough one. 
And as best as I understand it, Giuliani campaigned for Eric uh, Eric Ulrich in Queens every single election and was, I think, especially in his first election, pretty integral to him being elected. And yet, I know he works for Eric Adams. How does Eric Ulrich, Commissioner Eric Ulrich, feel about his boss, the mayor, sitting there demonizing a guy that helped get him elected? I, I really... I would have hoped that Eric Ulrich would have made a statement. Now, I realize, look, if John Katsimatidis does something that's that's crazy, I'm not going to run out in the streets and say, hey, you know, my boss, the guy who's responsible for my livelihood, he's crazy because of X. I realize that's not what people do. But at the same time, I would have hoped he would have said something that was at least somewhat supportive of 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 not bullying which is what I think Mayor Adams is doing here, Mayor Giuliani. We'll do the AC report in about 15 minutes, uh, but if you want to comment on this, uh, whatever your position is, um, you're free to say it. 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Let us say hello to Jr. in Brooklyn. Hello, Jr. Oh, good morning, Frank. I have a couple of points, but the first main point I'd like to make is Eric Adams, regardless of what happens, will one day be the former mayor of New York City. And if someone doesn't disagree with one of his policies or something he's supporting, does that give the right to a citizen to do to him what happened to Giuliani? And what happens if the mayor turns around and does the same thing to future Eric Adams? Yeah, I think that's a great point. And that, that's something that Eric Adams would do well to keep in mind, that uh, karma is a witch, right? And that uh, one, one day, it, you know, a, a, a future mayor is going to be commenting on how people are harassing former Mayor Adams. That's a great point. Think about the popularity of Bill de Blasio. It's yeah. definitely going to happen to him now. Also, what what I don't like, too, is that, Thousands and thousands of false reports are made against people every year, especially as much as it's uncomfortable in domestic violence. A lot of men and women are blamed falsely for crime that often go unproven and often the the complainant never goes to court, but you have to arrest them. Where is Eric Adams at? Yeah, that's a great point. Is he going to start telling his police department don't uh, don't arrest uh, people that are accused of domestic violence? It's a great point. All right, thank you, Jr. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Bryce is in Brooklyn. Hello, Bryce. Yes, hello, Frank. I uh, love the show. Great fan of the show. Thank you. Um, yes. Um, I was disgusted when I heard Eric Adam made the first comment about uh, investigating Rudy Giuliani. And I'm not a dem- I'm not a Democrat. I'm not a Republican, and I'm black. I mean, sometimes you just have to learn how to massage a situation instead of throwing gasoline on it. And it it was more it just it was more embarrassing for him. I mean, there are better things he could be doing, and to be trying to investigate the former mayor, whether it was a slap, it wasn't. It didn't seem that strong. I mean, Rudy is in his maybe late seventies, eighties. Maybe it felt that way, and maybe it's also what the what Daniel said to him. So, but I was just ashamed. I, I agree with you, Bryce. And uh, look, I'm a fan of Mayor Giuliani, but I'm not a Democrat or a Republican either. I'm not viewing this through partisan lines. And look, I was, I think, the first person to say that I saw the video and I didn't think it looked that, that bad. 
But you know who I trust to um, deal with this whole situation? Law enforcement. Law enforcement. That's who should be making the determination about whether someone's arrested. And for Eric Adams to do this kind of victim shaming, I think is uh, is really low rent and really inappropriate. Larry is in Brooklyn. Hello, Larry. Yes, hello, Frank. I, I, I disagree with you slightly. I, I don't think Eric Adams is so mean-spirited as to take advantage of the fact that Giuliani's politics is, uh, is not contemporary today. I believe he was getting revenge because Giuliani in his program has been non unrelentingly critic, uh, critical of Eric Adams. So this was, this was an opportunity to get you back. It's like, mm. I, but he, he should have been above it, though, you know? Exactly. You're the guy. There's no need for you to be attacking someone that's been out of office for 20 years. If I were Eric Adams and somebody asked me, oh, what do you think of uh, Rudy Giuliani saying that you're a terrible mayor? My attitude would be, look, I'm not going to dignify that with a response. You know, uh, I, that that's what he should act. As, act the part. Act like you've been there before. But, and not only that. But to, but to do something with such widespread ramifications, you know, um, first of all, as far as the video goes, I mean, it's like everybody is like waxing stupid. Didn't ever, anybody hear of Bruce Lee's, Bruce Lee's two-inch punch? Hmm. I mean, that Pat, what happened was that guy planned the whole thing. He worked there. He's aware of the video. He planned the entire thing. He's not going to wind up. He was. I happened to look at his structure. He had very strong wrists. This guy. So what he did was he made it look like a pat. And when he was within a few inches of of of, of Giuliani's back, he he went very hard into his back and and pushed him. Now you got to understand. This is a seventy eight year old man. Right. Okay. So you know you take your victim as you find them. Yeah. That's what the law says. No, uh, and that's why McMahon is was wrong for for downgrading the charges. Yeah. Well, look, I'm not going to question that. You know who I think had the most responsible hot take on this? It's Joe Borelli. Joe Borelli is the councilman that represents this area where uh, the, the, where the supermarket is and where I live. And and Joe is not only one of my closest friends, but he's a neighbor of mine. And he told the New York Times, and this is what the mayor should have said. This is what I would say if somebody asked me about it. If a crime was committed, the district attorney will handle it. Done. Done. He's not saying, oh, you know, Rudy Giuliani was assaulted and they had to bring out a wheelchair for him and they had to have five ambulances uh, take Rudy to the hospital. He's not saying that. And he's also not doing what Adams is doing, going out of his way to, you know, uh, call Mayor Giuliani a liar here. I think what Joe Borelli's attitude is, is incredibly responsible. If a crime was committed, the district attorney will handle it. Period. Done. Why is that degree of diplomacy missing from Eric Adams' view of the situation? 800-848-9222. We're going to go live to Atlantic City in about 10 minutes and look at the, the, the strike that is scheduled to begin there on Friday, which I am hoping... We can avoid. We'll talk with the labor reporter from The Guardian to see if there's any way that that can be avoided. So stay tuned for that. Tony is in Florida. Hello, Tony. Hi, Frank. You know, um, this is a man that's nearly 80 years old. Their body is different than that of a young person. I'm 63, and I have a disease that's a neuromuscular disease. Oh, I'm sorry. Somebody, thank you. Had somebody come up behind me 
and done the same exact thing, my body would have been racked with pain. And when you're nearly 80, you can be riddled with arthritis. You can have a disease like mine that you can't see. And God only knows how much pain he caused him when he hit him. And it doesn't matter how hard it was painful. When you're almost 80, even when you're healthy, it's painful. So for them to say, oh, you know, he's lying or it's not that bad, in the state of Florida, we don't have assault like that. What we have is battery. And this law says if a person touches another person against their will, first-degree misdemeanor. doesn't say how hard they have to hit them or hurt them if they just touch them against their will. And that's what happened here. And he hurt him. And for them to be making fun of him or calling him a liar is just plain wrong. Uh, thank you, Tony. Uh, let me squeeze in at least one or two more calls here before we do the AC report. Pamela is in central New Jersey. Hello, Pamela. Hi. Um, yeah, um, Eric Adams was implying uh, that uh, this was a Karen incident, which I find offensive. Right. The uh, Central Park Karen, that's the uh, that's the dog walking incident, uh, the dog treat and bird watcher incident. Yeah, that's a very, um, you know, he's always brings up race. And this is racism on his part. And and all, you have to look at the whole picture with this guy. This guy was also saying things. And that guy, that was uh, sharp what that guy was saying. You could give a good blow and not make it look like one on video. Yeah, uh, that's exactly that's exactly right. Thank you, uh, Pamela. Uh, Brian's in Denver. Hello, Brian. Hi, Frank. A uh, couple of things. I'll try to make them real quick. Uh, first, Rudy is among the kindest and certainly uh, one of, if not uh, uh, one of the, the top 10 uh, elected officials we've had in the United States in decades. But beyond that... Well, well Brian, I'm going to let you make your point uh, uninterrupted after I interrupt you. But I'll just add, even if Rudy Giuliani was the worst elected official we've ever had, or even if he wasn't uh, anybody that was famous, in my view... The mayor still shouldn't be publicly shaming and demonizing him. To me, whether he was a great mayor or – and I happen to think he was a very good mayor – but whether he was a great mayor or a terrible mayor or never a mayor, that doesn't give him license to inject himself into an ongoing criminal case. True, and, and elected officials should be very, very careful to ever comment on any type of criminal proceeding like a, like a judge – before it has a chance to come to fruition, because that can interfere with justice being administered because it influences juries and other officials. But also in this day and age, to come up and slap somebody on the back like Rudy Giuliani, who's a target because of who he is, can be a very scary, frightening thing that could cause someone who's older to have a heart attack or have you know, other issues because of the shock of being slapped on the back. Uh, but uh, I'll leave on, on just this last point. Uh, Nick, who called earlier about narcissistic uh, girlfriends or wives, uh, I would add to that uh, borderline personality uh, disorder. Uh, that's a very uh, scary situation. And, and lastly, uh, when I was uh, uh, Mayor Adams, the most intelligent thing I've ever heard him say was what he said about jail and how it can mess up 
somebody's life in a very short period of time. That is true. He should not have tainted it by talking about Karen's and introducing his racist views into that. But his initial thought on jail was accurate. And uh, I think he really blew an, an opportunity to be a decent human being, Mr. Adams did. And Rudy has always been a great human being. You have a great night, friend. Thanks, Brian. Appreciate it. 800-848-WABC. Uh, we're going to give you an update on this possible strike on Friday, tomorrow, that may begin in Atlantic City. I hope it doesn't happen. If it does happen, I hope it's short. We'll get into it straight ahead. WABC. You can depend. This is the AC Report. Well, they blew up the chicken man in Philly last night. And they blew up his house, too. Down on the boardwalk, they're ready for a fight. Gonna see what them racket boys can do. Now there's trouble busting in from out of state And the DA can't get no relief Gonna be a rumble on the promenade And the gambling commissioner's hanging on by the skin of his teeth Everything dies, baby, that's a fact But maybe everything that dies someday he comes back Put your makeup on, fish your hair up pretty, and meet me tonight in Atlantic City. Oh yes, that's right, it is time for our weekly look at one of the most interesting cities in the world, Atlantic City, New Jersey. And I am very happy to tell you that uh, I am returning to Atlantic City in a mere nine days. This will have been my longest time away from Atlantic City since I was 19 years old, and I am looking forward to going. But maybe my enthusiasm is a bit misplaced, because if you look at the headlines, it looks like we are very close to multiple casinos seeing a casino worker strike Right around the 4th of July weekend, which is one of the biggest weekends Atlantic City has for the whole summer. Uh, somebody that's done a great job reporting on this is uh, Michael Sinato. He's a labor and economic reporter and a contributor to The Guardian who's done some great reporting on this story. Michael, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. Uh, thanks for having me, Frank. Uh, so give folks a, a little bit of your background. If they haven't read your work previously, what's your background in terms of your reporting on the labor movement? Well, uh, I've been a labor reporter for The Guardian for the, the past four years, um, covering mostly you know national things uh, across the U.S., um, some international work as well. Um, you know, and, you know, I, if, you know, you've seen a labor story in The Guardian over the past few years 
uh, most likely, uh, you know, my name is on the byline. <laughs> no, you do uh, a terrific job. So give folks who maybe have not been following this too closely, give them sort of the reader, Reader's Digest version of how we got here. What is it that the casino workers want and um, why are they so upset? Well, I mean, everyone remembers what happened in, in 2020, and, you know, whether it's a casino or hotel or restaurants, everything shut down in March 2020. Uh, and, you know, these workers were kind of, you know, pushed out on the unemployment line, and anyone who had to deal with unemployment at that time, you know, it, it was a mess. Uh, it was a mess to get through to uh, you know, a live person, to, if you had any issues, uh, a lot of people are waiting on delayed pays. Uh, so there was that aspect of it. And then, uh, you know, a few months later, things started opening back up. Uh, and it, it wasn't easy, uh, you know, if you were a worker returning to work, uh, you know, still worried about uh, COVID, still worried about uh, whether your, your shifts are going to be the same, uh, what the workloads have been like, and you know, speaking with workers not just at, at Atlantic City but in hospitality around the U.S., um, especially housekeepers, they, you know, they've experienced um, big issues with big workloads uh, because of what a lot of hotels are doing and these casinos have done it as well as they've eliminated mandated daily room cleaning. Um, so if you get a hotel for you know, say three nights. Uh, you know, those housekeepers aren't going to automatically come in and clean it unless the guests, you know, specifically request it. Um, and that was seen by workers as a labor cost cutting uh, tactic. Um, you know, initially it was under the guise of protecting people from COVID, but, uh, you know, it, it's still going on now um, when, you know, you know, pretty much most COVID protection, protections have been. Uh, removed. So, so workers are upset about that. So you have housekeepers coming, going into rooms that no one has touched in three or four days. Uh, and, you know, I spoke with housekeepers at uh, these casinos. I've spoken with housekeepers around the U.S. and they said, it, you know, it's a mess. Uh, it's a lot more work, a lot more trash to take out. And, um, you know, they're still expected to, you know, hit quotes, expected quotas. Um, and, you know, last year we, we saw stories, you know, ongoing staffing shortages, there's worker shortages, uh, and that's been the case in these casinos. Um, you know, a, a lot of the workers have been there for years and years and years, uh, and, you know, a lot of their issues is they're doing the work of two or three people because their departments are uh, properly staffed, uh, the pay um, that, you know, they make typically just over $15 an hour, uh, and with all the prices been going up um, and a, a lot of, you know, different employers offering higher wages, uh, you know, they if they can get employees in the door, they can't keep them. And that's been a big issue uh, at these casinos. Um, so the, their union contract expired May 31st without a new deal in place. Um, and, and in previous contracts, workers have, you know, they, they didn't push for wage increases uh, because they were emphasizing, um, you know, securing retirement pensions and, and health care benefits and things like that. So uh, this time around, uh, you know, we, we've seen it, you know, throughout the labor movement, uh, people are pushing for 
you know, wage increases, inflation, you know, above 8%. Um, so really anything less than that uh, is, is pretty much a, a pay cut uh, that the workers are pushing for. And, and the casinos, you know, haven't been very, um, from what I've seen, they, you know, they didn't respond for requests for comment on my story, and that was typical across the board when other outlets were reporting on this. Um, but, you know, according to the union, they're not really, they haven't at this point budged on, on wages. And, uh, you know, Atlantic City and the casinos, they're, they're back to pre-pandemic levels. The profits are back up, uh, but the, the working conditions are, are still rough for these workers, and they just want to be, um, you know, taken care of in terms of wages. And I think that's why, you know, 96% of the, the workers that voted at the strike authorization a few weeks ago on June 15th voted to strike. And um, starting on June 1st, this Friday, uh, Cesar July Harris, 1st. July 1st, excuse me. Cesar Harris, Tropicana, and the Borgata, uh, they're going on strike. And then the strike date uh, for July 3rd at Hard Rock. All right. Um, you said a great deal there. So in terms of what the casino workers and their union uh, unite here, local 54 uh, is asking for specifically, you said you mentioned a number of 8% inflation. So is that what they're looking for in terms of a, of a, re- a wage increase? Are they looking for an 8% wage increase? Basically they they've been uh, not exactly sure what they've, what their most recent proposal has been. But, I mean, that, that's basically the, the base is what they're looking for, something uh, along the lines of, you know, uh, the typical work, their average is around $15 right now. I think they would like to see, um, you know, $18, $19 a, a, an hour. Uh, and, and then there's some other issues. Um, uh, the casinos have uh, relied on uh, staffing agencies, so contracted workers, and they want to, you know, control that and make sure that if they do get wage increases, they're not uh, undercut or lost by um, the casinos just relying on some contracting where those workers are paid, you know, less and, uh, you know, a third party gets a, a part of the, the wages that they're they're paid. Got it. Uh, if people are just tuning in, we're doing the AC report with Michael Sinato. He is a labor and economic reporter and a contributor to The Guardian. We, we uh, spoke a couple of weeks ago with uh, with Roger Gross, who's a publisher of uh, uh, basically a, a magazine called Global Gaming Business Magazine. So he is, I think, very sympathetic to where the casino workers, excuse me, where the casino owners are coming from. This is what he said uh, in terms of where the casinos were with respect to the union demands. The casinos are certainly prepared to offer a, a substantial raise. I mean, they, they understand that these workers have, have really gone to the mat for them when it comes to the pandemic. You know, they came back immediately after the pandemic was, was uh, winding down when the casinos reopened. And uh, they, they've done a great job in, in, uh, in getting uh, back to work and, and servicing their customers. Uh, the, the union, however, is, is, again, is asking for, for multiples of, of what the casinos are, are willing to give. Uh, and uh, uh, the way they, they uh, 
couch these things is just just very difficult for the casinos to really really uh, absorb uh, their their demands at this point. So you know uh, the, the uh, Bob McDevin and, and his crew, you know, are really uh, kind of a two faced. In a lot of cases, they they talk about how much they're they're working for their their uh, members, and uh, but at the other on the other side of the equation, they're working for the casinos. Michael, what I'm trying to figure out, and what uh, I think a lot of our listeners are trying to figure out, is just how far apart these two sides are. So uh, Roger Gross claims that the casinos are willing to offer a substantial raise. Um, you've indicated that the casino workers would need more than an eight percent raise uh, something along the lines of 18 or $19 per hour, plus some changes to using staffing agencies. Do we know how far apart these two sides are in terms of specifics, either in terms of dollar per hour or in terms of percentage? Uh, there hasn't been a lot of information uh, leaked based on uh, where negotiations are. I, I do know that they've you know, been meeting daily. So uh, obviously that's going to change uh, based on, on the back and forth. And, and, and there's typically a reason for uh, why unions don't necessarily um, leak what everything that's going on in the negotiations. But the, the, the point is uh, that, uh, you know, they, they have been this far apart because the contract expired a month ago. And, you know, there, we have less than 48 hours until a strike begins. And, um, you know, there, there is still time for both sides to, to reach a deal and avoid a strike. And, and, you know, that's happened, you know, plenty of times before. So it's not necessarily imminent, but, um, you know, the, the union and, and the workers have uh, made no qualms about, um, you know, being prepared to strike. You know, the, the union's been posting pictures. They've got uh, dozens and dozens of signs ready, uh, and it seems like their membership is – um, you know, excited if it comes to that, that they're, they, in, you know, they will strike if they need to do so. Um, and, you know, we'll, we'll see from there uh, whether that, that pressures the, um, the casinos to, to up their proposal to something more than uh, what the negotiating committee is looking for um, on, a, on a new contract. What is the plan now in terms of a work stoppage? I know you indicated that uh, Caesars, Borgata, and Tropicana are slated to uh, begin their work stoppage, their workers, on Friday, and then it would be the Borgata, uh, excuse me, then it would be the Hard Rock a few days later. Do, how do these work stoppages go until they work out a new labor agreement, or do they go for a day or two and then they say, all right, let's give the Hard Rock workers an opportunity to uh, to do their work stoppage? How do these work stoppages go in terms of your your understanding of how this would work? There are unions can strike for like one day or a set amount of time, and that sometimes happens. But this would be an indefinite strike until at least a tentative uh, agreement is reached. Um, and, and then typically what happens is the, the strike is paused and then members vote on it. Um, and depending on the outcome of the, that vote, um, the, the strike ends and the deal is reached uh, or, you know, the membership rejects the vote. Uh, the, the new contract and the, and the strike continues. Um, and, and just, you know, most recently last year, uh, workers at John Deere, they kept on uh, voting down the, the contract that um, 
the tentative contracts uh, over in Iowa, and the workers kept on going on strike uh, to demand, you know, better um, pay and, and more concessions from their employer. So um, I can't say or speculate, you know, what, what's going to happen on um, those fronts, but. Um, if no deal is reached by Friday, um, you will see uh, a, a lot of workers um, out on picket lines uh, outside of these casinos. Um, you know, it is just these um, these five casinos that are going on strike, but um, there are other casinos um, in the area, and a couple of casinos um, have already agreed to adhere to whatever is agreed upon in these contracts. Um, so you'll see, you know, members, you'll see community members and, um, you know, their families on the picket lines if it comes to that. And what would this mean for people staying at these hotels or for players? Uh, these casinos, as I understand it, are planning to remain open. What would the experience visiting one of these properties be like for just a regular person, somebody listening to us right now? Uh, well, if you're visiting it during the strike. During the strike, yeah. During the strike, uh, you're going to have to cross a, a picket line, uh, and it, it really just depends on um, the contingency plans the casinos have in place, um, how many workers cross the picket line, uh, how successful they are in getting, um, you know, most likely um, contractor workers to, to fill in the, the positions of the, the workers who are out on strike, and uh, you know, with, with a strike this big, uh, you know, there could possibly be, um, you know, parts of the casino or uh, services that will be, you know, reduced, you know, possibly canceled. I, you know, I can't speculate mm-hmm. um, surely on that, but that's what typically happens, um, you know, especially in the hospitality industry. So uh, it, it's it's really all contingent on, um, you know, how strong that the the membership comes out for the strike and and you know what the casinos are are prepared to do to get those contingent workers um to to cross picket lines what are the workers telling you about how they're feeling going into the drop dead date of uh, friday july 1st do they seem uh, nervous do they seem defiant do they seem optimistic do they seem frustrated what are the workers telling you they're frustrated that, that it's come to this. You know, none of these workers want to go on strike because, um, you know, they they are giving up income uh, to to do that. And you know, for people who have given years and years and years of service to uh, these casinos, they you know they don't want to see uh, a, a strike happen. Uh, but they, they, they're at the point, they're at a, you know, kind of a boiling point where they feel like this is the, the last resort to, to get the casinos to, to make the necessary changes to, to pay to, and, you know, with that, uh, to fix the, the staffing issues that they've still been experiencing. Um, because, you know, like I said before, with the, the low pay, they can't retain or hire, uh, or compete with, you know, other other workers, um, you know, because, it, you know, anyone that's worked in hospitality, whether it's, you know, working at a restaurant or working in hotels, it's it's not an easy job. So, um, and, I, you know, I think these, these workers are, are really frustrated to see that, you know, business is booming, business is back, but they're, you know, struggling, you know, more than ever with, 
Um, you know, the prices of everything that's been going up. Um, people I've, I've talked to people um, that are consistently, you know, living paycheck to paycheck, either at the end of the month, they either have to figure out whether they're going to pay rent and pay their bills late the next week or uh, vice versa. And, um, you know, working full time um, for, you know, a thriving business like a casino in Atlantic City, um, that shouldn't be the case. No, uh, certainly it should not uh, not be. One of the things that I'm surprised we haven't heard more of from the union here is the proposal to ban smoking in Atlantic City casinos. You know, I, I'm a, a, an occasional cigar smoker, so I'm hoping that they don't go forward with the smoking ban. But I can understand if you're working five, six, seven, eight hours on the casino floor at a time, you don't want to breathe in all this secondhand tobacco smoke. But as I have seen the coverage, uh, that is not one of the issues that the union seems to be making um, making one of their key points here. Is the union uh, upset about all this smoking going on or because they think that'll hurt the bottom line in terms of uh, revenue? Are they re- kind of remaining silent on the issue of smoking? Yeah, I, I haven't seen it brought up. And, um, you know, I, like, like you said, I, I think it just could be um, – you know, a, a less important issue given the the bread and butter issues that the the union is fighting for, uh, and, and it could be you know a, de- a divisive one um, based on you know it, you know if you're a smoker or you know I, I would see see likely that uh, you know a lot of people would at least want it reduced to certain areas, but um, yeah, I, work, that's not something that, that workers or, or the union I've seen bring up. One of the things that we've seen over the course of the last 80 or 90 years is uh, a decline in the private sector organized labor movement in this country. And then we heard a lot about that. And then we heard in the, um, you know, in the run up to the Janus decision by the Supreme Court that this is going to make it even tougher for organized labor in this country. And then it looked like the labor movement was sort of catching a little bit of a head of steam Uh, where I live in Staten Island. You had these Amazon workers vote to unionize and then a push in other private sector uh, workplaces towards unionization. For people that are curious about where the labor movement is right now, particularly the private sector labor movement, where are things right now as, as you see it with the labor movement in this country? Well, I mean, looking at the statistics, uh, you know, it, it, it is grim and it has been pretty grim for, you know, the past few decades because, um, you know, they, they've been on a decline. And there's a lot of various reasons for why that's happened since the 70s. Um, and, but, uh, you know, just over the, the past couple of years, uh, I, I think, you know, people within the labor movement, uh, there's kind of a consensus that COVID has kind of exposed a lot of the issues within workplaces uh, and, and really kind of inspired um, labor union organizing in places that haven't, you know, have typically successfully thwarted any union organizing efforts, like you mentioned, at Amazon and Staten Island, uh, at the retail store REI. Uh, in, in New York, uh, you know, second one filed for union election. A couple of Trader Joe's stores have filed for union elections. You know, that retail chain doesn't have a union. Uh, Starbucks stores, uh, there wasn't a union one year ago uh, in the U.S. at a corporate store. Now they're headed towards almost 200. 
Um, so, uh, you know, I, I think, uh, especially among younger people, uh, I think there, there's really a push. And at the National Labor Relations Board, um, you know, they've been really pushing uh, for policies to facilitate union organizing and kind of um, en enabling this resurgence of the labor movement and this kind of energy and excitement, whether it's around, um, you know, strikes. There were a, a lot of them just this past fall, uh, you know, at John Deere, at, um, you know, a lot of different companies. And, um, you know, I think the, this casino strike, I think, is part of that. Um, you know, hospitality workers, you might hear just uh, when the pandemic hit, um, most of their membership lost their jobs. And um, so they've kind of had to rebuild uh, their unions back up and, and then their workers back up. And, um, you know, as the hotel industries and a lot of tourism has kind of started to, to rebound, um, you know, workers, um are still you know suffering and we see this in a lot of different industries just you know with the airline industry right now with all the, the cancellations and everything so so things aren't back to normal for workers and i think workers are kind of waking up to the fact that uh union organizing is a, a vehicle to uh facilitate changes that they are seeking to work in conditions and pay and things like that. Do you have a favorite Atlantic City restaurant? Uh, I like the, the Tropicana. I haven't been there in a while, but although uh, I wish I was there uh, a few days ago. I know Bocelli was in Atlantic City. Yeah. So. But uh, any specific restaurant at the Trop that you have as a favorite? Uh, I don't remember at this Fair point. Enough. Fair enough. All right. We won't hold you to that. Michael Sinato is doing some great reporting in The Guardian on the labor movement all over the country, especially what's happening in Atlantic City, which I think is going to be one of the most watched labor stories and economic stories in the whole country, certainly in our region. Uh, thank you very much, Michael. We'll look forward to chatting again soon. All right. Thanks a lot, Frank. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you're welcome to give me a call, 1-800-848-WABC. That's 1-800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead. WABC. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC. This song is Waterloo by Stonewall Jackson. This was actually a number one hit for Stonewall Jackson back in 1959. It's a great song. It tells the story of three famous people who, because of their actions, met their water, Waterloo. You have Adam, who ate the apple. You have uh, Napoleon uh, at the Battle of Waterloo, obviously. And then Tom Dooley, who was hanged for murder. It's a great song and tells a great story. I love it. The world had lost his pants, <laughs> 
I love it. All right, 800-848-WABC. Hey, still to come, we're going to talk with Brian Kilmeade about the news of the day. Did you have any idea that um, this weekend, I think it's this weekend, is the USFL championship? Do you get the sense that anybody cares about the USFL? I think Brian Kilmeade does. So we're going to find out why he cares, number one, and why no one else seems to. But uh, you're welcome to comment on anything we've covered thus far. 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. Al is in Fort Lauderdale. Hello, Al. Good morning, Frank. Morning. I just wanted to say a few things about uh, Mike from The Guardian. He did, I think, touch on it, but there's a a, a discrepancy. Uh, you know, when you pay your news, isn't that supposed to pay when you're on strike? Uh, um, you know, I think, yeah, I don't know the the specifics of how it works in terms of uh, Unite Here Local 54. But, yeah, I imagine they're going to get something. I don't imagine it's going to be full salary, though. Yeah. And nowadays, because of inflation, workers need to keep every penny they make. And when you try to uh, get out of the union... The dues keep being deducted from your paycheck, even though you've expressed an interest to no longer be a union member. Well, I mean, I and think it, that it might takes have ch- an act of God to stop it. Yeah, I think that might have changed a little bit with the Janus decision, but I'll defer to uh, your expertise on that one, Al. Charles is in Queens. Hello, Charles. Yeah, hi. Good morning. Good morning. Oh, yeah. um, I came to the conclusion that Eric Adams basically opened his mouth just to change feet. He recently made the, the brilliant, uh, he came up with this brilliant idea in a bad neighborhood with, with crime being as rampant as it is and police caps are being picked off like uh, like fish in a barrel. And he puts one guy in, in a, uh, whichever na- very bad neighborhood. Oh no, it's not, all of a sudden it's not a good idea. And now he's, he's starting up with the mayor of... All right, Charles, out of time. Thank you. Uh, next hour, Brian Kilmeade and Comfort Reruns. Until then, your influence counts, so use it. LIRFM Hampton Bays. From around the world to around the block, this is a WABC 77 Second News Update. Good morning. I'm Dominic Carter. The death toll in the San Antonio trailer tragedy has risen to 53. A Texas official says two more migrants found in an abandoned trailer Sunday have died. Officials say most of the migrants were from Mexico. Justice Stephen Breyer's retirement will be effective today at noon. He says Judge Katanji Brown Jackson is prepared to begin her service as the 116th member of the court. And a new study finds falling asleep in front of the TV every night could contribute to an early death. Researchers at the Northwestern University School of Medicine examined the impact of light on the health and sleeping habits of people between the ages of 63 and 84. The study found those who slept with lighting from the TV were more likely to suffer from diabetes, obesity, and hypertension. Frank Marano and the other side of midnight continues up next. Your forecast from the Ramsey Mazda Weather Center 
Overnight, partly cloudy, a low of 68. Later today, sunny, a high near 90. It's clear outside our Midtown studios. I'm Dominic Carter. Remember, the news never stops at WABCradio.com. 77 WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. So I, I do read this Axios newsletter. And uh, the basically Axios is a news source. And they send these newsletters out, which are compilations of different news on different uh, subjects. You can get Axios, all the national news. I get Axios space news. I get Axios news related to China. Axios news related to the Middle East. I think they do a good job. Not only do I think a lot of the original reporting is very sound, but I like the compilations they do and I like the way they summarize things into bullet points and sometimes whoever's putting together the Axios newsletter will come up with a little comment or something so last night I get this uh, Axios newsletter this one is compiled by Ina or Ina Freed okay and there's some interesting articles there about privacy's cloudy future and so on and this is the first sentence in the newsletter it's not related to any of the news items it's just basically her observations, her two cents, her uh, random rumination this is what she says. I was just thinking how comforting reruns are. What are your favorites? Mine are The Office, The Closer, Castle and Law and Order. So that's what she said. And it got me thinking, my wife. As I leave for work every day, usually as she's settling into bed, she'll watch a rerun of a show that she's already seen. And the ones that she likes to watch are Psych, um, Psych, Modern Family, and Schitt's Creek. She likes to watch those reruns. She likes something a little lighthearted. And uh, something that she's seen before so that she doesn't have to pay too close attention. And I was trying to think when I saw this newsletter, what mine are. And for years, the answer was always Seinfeld, right? First of all, Seinfeld's on all the time. So you can just turn on the television and boom, there's Seinfeld. But I found that I know the Seinfeld rerun so well that if there's an opportunity to watch something else, a lot of times I don't. So... I was trying to think when I watch reruns, and it's pretty rare because usually if I'm in a position where I want to watch something, I'll watch something that I haven't seen. Like right now, for instance, I'm working my way through the West Wing. I'm almost done with it. I'm enjoying it. 
and uh, I'll watch something I haven't seen. I won't usually put on a rerun or something unless it's okay for me to be distracted. Now, if it's okay for me to be distracted, if I'm working on something, I'll usually put on the radio. Sometimes I'll put on, um, if I'm feeding Carmine, I can't use my hands. I can't really get work done. That's when I'll put on a new show. But if I watch a rerun, it's generally something that I've seen, but maybe not seen as many times as I've seen Seinfeld. And uh, maybe I'll put on an old Star Trek rerun or something along those lines. Uh, If I have people over, and my wife asks me to put on something in the background, and we don't want—we're not going to be listening to music. We just want something visually up there. Then I'll usually put on a curb your enthusiasm or something. I get on my cable system two channels that seem to show The Office all the time. One is Comedy Central. I'm not sure which the other one is, but The Office is on all the time. Sometimes there are three channels all showing three different episodes of The Office. I'm not sure how The Office became kind of the go-to rerun show. And I love The Office, but I kind of only saw it once through initially. But now it's on so often that a lot of times my wife will put it on. And sometimes when we go to someone's house, they'll have The Office on in the background. As I said, I'm more of a radio guy. I prefer to listen to the great talk shows that are out there, including on this station. But, you know, different talk shows around the country. So I'm wondering, in your view, what reruns do you really enjoy? If you're putting something on, do you do as my wife does and watch a rerun before you go to bed or whenever you have 20 minutes to kill when you don't want to necessarily read a book and maybe there's not compelling radio content on because I really don't. I, unless I can, there's nothing great on the radio and there's no podcast that I want to listen to, or at least uh, not a podcast that I want to pay attention to, then I'll put on a Star Trek rerun, but it's it's rare. Usually if I want to watch something, I put on something I haven't seen. Or like now my wife and I are watching Cheers because she hasn't seen it. And because it's been so long, close to 30 years, since I've seen these Cheers episodes, it's almost like it's still new to me. Same thing with The Sopranos. It had been so long since I'd seen The Sopranos that um, there were a lot of elements of each episode that I'd forgotten. But uh, other shows that I really like, like um, Breaking Bad or um, Mad Men, even though I really enjoy these shows, I don't put on the reruns because even the reruns seem to take so much, there's so much need to pay attention to those because they're just so captivating. The Office, I can understand why it's a popular rerun choice, both with Ina Freed, with uh, our friends Rich and Danielle, and with Rachel, because you don't have to pay that close attention. And it's almost like a series of sketches. A lot of the scenes sort of stand on their own. It's not necessarily tied to a broader story. Mad Men, The Sopranos, Breaking Bad, you do have to pay attention. It is captivating. So I'm curious, when you put something on, what do you put on as a rerun and why? 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. Matt Blaze, do you have a favorite rerun, a go-to rerun? I go through different stages of Mm -hmm. reruns. Mm -hmm. And right now, the one that I watch the most, and it's always on, is The King of Queens. Really? Which I didn't watch when it was originally on. 
But I watch, I've probably seen every episode. Interesting. See, that's what happened with me and Mad Men uh, and Breaking Bad. I didn't see either of them when they were on. I watched them afterwards, but they were. it was all new for me. I, I haven't sat through right. all the, the reruns of them. What are some of your other fra- phases? Um, two and a Half Men. So you're into the sitcoms. Always on the sitcoms, yeah. Roseanne is on like every Saturday. And all these shows are on in marathons. Right. So you could watch... You know, eight, four hours of this, of this one show. So I watch Golden Girls. That's decent. I yeah. like the Golden Girls. Alex, what about you? What is your rerun? Your go to rerun? Um, well, actually, I think I feel like I'm a little closer to you in that I tend to like to listen to things more than watch them. Mm-hmm. I but I instead of radio per se, except for like reruns of Car Talk, which is my all time favorite radio show. Um, Second. Well, yeah, other than The Other Side of Midnight, yes. Um, I have, like, comfort albums, in a way. Oh. and it, I, Which is ironic, because if you listened to the music that I like, you would not find anything comforting. Right, you're into the heavy that, metal, right? Or whatever, yeah, whatever. really, really bizarre metal. What, what do they call the genre that you're into? Is it death metal, death metal? I like death metal. I like... Is it death or death? Death. Death. Yeah, death. I like a lot of death metal. I oh, like yeah, a lot of thrash the stuff that I really like is called sludge. It's really oh, slow goodness. and uh, abysmal. <laughs> it sounds horribly depressing. It now, is, and that's the point. It <laughs> is interesting what you said, uh, Matt Blaze. Hey, you know what I do do sometimes is I put on old wrestling pay-per-views, and now that the WWE Network yeah, I've done that has too. all these. But then I find the same thing. is like I want to sit there and watch the, the matches and watch what right. happens. But um, why... I noticed your go-tos are kind of the same genre as my wife's, They're all, and most of the ones that this lady mentions, although Law & Order is an exception to that. You picked sitcoms. Why is it always the sitcoms for you? I think it starts because that's what's always on, uh-huh. and I always go to those channels. Like, I watch TV Land. That's what they show, sitcoms. Before it was King of Queens, it was Everybody Loves Raymond because it was always on. Uh, the only the only other show I can think of that I would watch reruns of um, the first forty eight. What is that? I don't even know what that is. It's like somebody there's a homicide, and they say you have forty eight hours. If it, they don't get a clue within forty eight hours, it probably goes unsolved. And they just show the process of getting a suspect. It's on A and E. I watch that. I watch ridiculousness. On MTV, which is basically like hmm. funniest home videos. And that's all. Another one. MTV, 95% of the time now, plays ridiculousness. Uh, Avery, what about you? Are you a rerun guy? Yeah, absolutely. What do you watch? Well, it depends if you're trying to fall asleep or if you're just trying to watch something, you know, while you're staying awake. Now, let's take the latter category. Watch something while you're staying awake. Why would you choose... To watch something that you've already seen rather than watch something that you've never seen. Well, I call it rewatch value. Dramas don't have high rewatch value. Uh, sitcoms do. Okay. Well, I guess that makes sense. All right. So give me both of yours, the, uh, the fall asleep and the stay awake. Well, fall asleep is my secret shame as a black man. I have to admit that I watch Frasier. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, black people can watch Frasier. Okay, man. <laughs> <laughs> what is that a big shame in the black community to watch Frasier? Yeah, you can't man. watch shows with white people in them. No, that's not it. Like Seinfeld is cool. 
Frazier is not too cool to admit to. I've seen every episode. But there's no black. There's one black guy in the whole Seinfeld series, Mr. Wilhelm. There's no other. And the exterminator. There's and, two black people in the whole series of and, Seinfeld. And Jackie the lawyer. Yeah, right. Jackie <laughs> Childs. That's right. That's right. But why is that more of a, an acceptable black choice than Frazier is? Frazier is uh, not exactly geared towards the black community. Okay. All right. Being in Seattle and sipping lattes, and yeah, you could re- you could rename that show Whitey McWhite White. <laughs> uh, and what about what's your other one? But I like the character from Cheers, though. Yeah, same. Uh, what's your other one? Um, just just um, just not falling asleep. Yeah. Well, I'll pick a drama then. You know, Breaking Bad is pretty good or something off on HBO. Yeah, it's interesting. Thank you. I was listening to another radio show and a fellow was talking about how he and his wife, they watch the same three films every week. One I had not seen and then one is Sideways and one is The Big Lebowski. And they watch every Friday. And I was listening to the show, and they said, well, why do you do that? Why don't you watch something new? And the fella said, well, honestly, by the end of the week, we, you know, we've got a couple of small kids. We're so tired that we just want to kind of not put in the effort to pay attention to something new. We just want to watch something that's familiar and that we know we like. I guess that's how it is with reruns. See, to me, I can't do it. If I'm going to not pay attention to something and I want just something as background noise – I'll put on 80 to 85% of the time talk radio. If I do want to watch television, um, you know, if, if because I'm feeding uh, Carmine or something, I'll watch something that I haven't seen. Right now it's West Wing. But it might be a movie or it might be a documentary. I don't usually go out of my way to put on reruns except if there's three or four people over and you want something on in the background that people can kind of look up to and say, you know, Oh, what's this going on here? You know what I've been putting on a lot for people, and and nobody really seems that into it. Star Trek: The Animated Series. I uh, some friends of ours came to visit with their three small children, and they have all these cartoons that they want to watch that I've never heard on. So I, I put on Star Trek: The Animated Series for them. They weren't into it. They didn't like the animation. I thought because I have a Tribble on my bookshelf, I thought, and they they really like this Tribble because it it um. It makes the same noises that a Tribble would make on Star Trek. I thought they were going to be into it, so I put on the Tribble episode of Star Trek The Animated Series. There are some very good episodes of Star Trek The Animated Series, by the way. All right, 800-848-9222. What's your go-to rerun, number one? And number two, what makes something a good show to watch for a rerun? Because you got Avery, Matt Blaze, my wife, and this Axios lady all making their go-to reruns sitcoms. And I guess mine, went for the years that it was Seinfeld, that was also my go-to rerun. 800-848-WABC. Let me begin with Ray in New Jersey. Hello, Ray. How you doing, Frank? Um, real quick, um, great job with the interview. Thank the, you. Uh, the green mile. Uh, the questions, you know, I, the questions I wanted to you, you were just rattling off the questions I wanted to ask, but great, great job. I appreciate that. Um, Thank you. All right. As far as um, sitcoms, I mean, not, Matt, Matt, I'm online with Matt. I like um, Big Bang, Golden Girls, uh, King of Queens, old school. I'm an odd couple guy. Oh, I love back, odd couple. But, um, that's, um, that's another point. 
Um, all right, back on Mayor Giuliani. Uh, listen, he's 78, like his son says. He has arthritis in his back. He got caught off guard. All right, he didn't get whacked. He got slapped in the back, whatever. Adams is jealous of him. Like like a previous caller says, Adams always pulls the race card. He's he, He'll never be a quarter of a mayor that Giuliani was. And... Um, uh, he just he, he's Bush he's Bush League and um, th- that those are my points and uh, thanks for your time. Thank you. Eight hundred eight four eight WABC. Chris is in Mount Vernon. Hello, Chris. Hey, what's up, Frank? Yeah, um, yeah. I like to I love to watch the show The The Mentalist. I must have, I must have rewatched it like five times. I now, uh, I'm into the field of mentalism, and I like guys like Oz Perlman and the amazing Kreskin. But I've never seen that show, The Mentalist. What's it about? It, it's about a, a guy. He was like a fake psychic or whatever, and, but really, he's just a, he was just a mentalist. He could just look at you and just know a whole bunch of things about you by what you're wearing, your fingers, and stuff like that. He was very, very, very good at it. And this serial killer murdered his wife and daughter, so he helps the police to to solve crimes. And in return, they promise to give him like first crack at information on any information on the, the serial killer. So he's like basically solving crimes, and as the show progresses, he's getting closer and closer to to getting the guy that murdered his wife and daughter. Oh, cool! It's a hey, really good show. Are they still making new episodes of that show? No, but there's there's seven seasons of it. So okay, so if, if somebody there wants to catch catch up from the beginning, they can. There's a lot to watch there. Um, did yeah. you watch that show when it was on, or you only started watching it afterwards? Both. I watched. Yeah, I watched it when it was on, and I rewatched it a few times. I keep trying to get to get people to watch it, but nobody. Like a lot of people haven't heard of it. It's really great. Well, yeah. No, I'm glad you filled me in. I'd heard of it, but didn't know much about it. Thank you, Chris. John's in Freehold. What's your go-to rerun, John? Uh, what's up, Frank? It's a pleasure as always. Um, I got two go-to reruns. It's a tie between uh, Dragon Ball Z and Rick and Morty. Oh, so you like animated? Yeah. You know, that's actually, that reminds me, one of my go-to reruns, I guess, is Family Guy. I go to the go, I go to Family Guy and American Dad again and again. Uh, so I, that, that yeah. re- re- refreshes my recollection. I could do that too. It's, uh, you know, when you want to just like do something and have it on the background as noise or you want to go to sleep, it's just something easy to put on. You don't have to pay attention because uh, you already know kind of what's going on and, you know. Those are always my go-to ones. Thank you, John. Joe and Ron Konkama, hello. Hey, Frank, another great show. Uh, how you doing tonight? I'm doing well. How about you? All right. Uh, I, I'm like Matt Blaze. I am addicted to King uh, Queens. I like Last Man Standing. Actually, uh, two nights ago, me and my wife got into it because she gets fed up. I have like two hours a night where I can watch TV, and on my cable network, they have two, an hour of King of Queens, and it goes into Last Man Standing. And I just love it. It's, you know, it's, it's uh, Tim Allen's funny. You know, Kevin James is funny in King Queens. And there's no, like, you know, like, it, it puts me into a different realm. You know, I, I can't, like, have a cigar at night because i got to get up early. Right. So, you know, I can't have a drink again because I have to get. So this just relaxes me. And she gets so annoyed, my wife. How could you watch this over and over again? Meanwhile, she's on her phone or she's having conversations 
but uh, I find it relaxing. It makes me feel, brings me back to a time where I was just, you know, good TV, basically, good, wholesome TV, you know? Yeah, I hear you. Thank you, uh, Joe. Appreciate that. 800-848-WABC. Joe in Manhattan, how about you? What's your go-to rerun? Hey, Frank, uh, the old Batman, Adam Oh, I see. Those are still great. Uh, Those are still great, in my opinion. I... Uh, I end up they, they replay those on I think it's Me TV on the weekend or oh, yeah. maybe it's Antenna TV. They're, Me TV, Me they're, TV on Saturday. They're right. terrific. They're they really are terrific. I think they're still a lot of fun. And also lost his face, and also out all the family. Welcome back, Cotter. You know, Taxi. You know, all those old shows from back in the seventies and everything. Not politically correct. You know, they're basically you know you don't see those shows anymore, but they're definitely uh, worth watching again and again. In your view, what is it that makes one of these shows successful and make it work as a rerun show? Uh, basically, I guess the chemistry of the actors, and they're still, they're still relevant, they're still around, but then again, they can even do reunions. I mean, they've been like uh, shows that, that have been on, like, um, well, let's just say um, um, they've done, you know, Frazier's got a reboot coming up pretty soon on Paramount. That's going to be probably sometime next year. I actually met Kelsey Grammer a couple of times in Manhattan at Christides. He's, he's doing, he's, he's got this new beer out. But the whole thing is, uh, I've even asked him about it. But I think basically, I mean, it's got the uh, nostalgia of the show, and you got the comedy, which never goes, never gets old. Like Cheers, for instance, I could watch that show constantly as well. I mean, it's Seinfeld. That's a whole league of its own. I mean, Seinfeld will never get old. I yeah. mean, that stuff. Being a New Yorker, you know, you can relate to it on so many different levels. It's. Uh, that's like, you know, it's like living, you know, the life of these characters. And that's why it's always, that's why it's always, it's a classic show and it's never going to go out of style. I mean, and, and uh, you know, it's just uh, the shows, the, the, the talent, a lot of these people that created these shows, they do like, you know, they get that other show, Two Broke Girls. I love that show too. I mean, I love, I, I look at what's the face, Cat Dennings all the time. I mean, and the whole thing is that, and the comedy, a little risque at times, but the whole thing is that it's, uh, you can tell from the different types of eras how things have changed over the years. You won't see all the family shows ever again or, or, uh, or um, you know, Barney Miller. I mean, they did things back in the 70s that they won't be able to get away with these days. But then you can watch them on DVD and, you know, like I got them all on DVD. And it's well, like, I, I just, do see all in the family it. shows once in a while rerun. I, I Sometimes the more risque ones where they use the N-word a lot, maybe I don't see those specific yeah. episodes replay, but I still see all in the family Rerun. You know, it's interesting to me, and I was trying to follow what Joe was saying there, and I think he's largely right about why certain shows are appealing. In listening to the shows that he listed, it seems that a lot of the shows that he enjoys watching reruns of play to a sense of nostalgia, right? They play to a sense of uh, a, a time in his life that he was looking back fondly on. But then he mentioned... Two Broke Girls. And then when he said that, you know, that's a more modern show. I'm thinking maybe I'm reading too much into it. Maybe it's just a function of wanting to see lighthearted comedy, whatever era it's from. And it has nothing to do with the era itself. I'm very curious about not only what you're watching as a rerun, but why. Why that particular show? If you've seen it, and I'm not talking about a show that you're discovering for the first time in reruns. But a show that if you've seen it, why do you keep putting it on? What is it about that particular show? 800-848-9222. Chris is in Peekskill. Hello, Chris. 
Hi. Uh, one of the cheesiest shows is uh, Chrisley Knows Best, and it's just a, a great cheesy show that's positive with a tight family, and it's just it's like a feel-good show. You know, I don't know that I've ever heard of that. Is that a newer show or an older show? No, it's on E usually. Uh, it's a, about a family, uh, and the father's like way over the top, uh, kind of, I, I would say, a feminine. And the kids are just nice and, and kind. And, like, at the end of the show, it's just a little schmaltzy and feels and, and what is it about the reruns of that show that you think make it worth rewatching so often? Uh, it's just it's a, it's, a, it's a nice show. It's like a feel-good, positive show. Okay. All right. Simple as that. Thank you. Uh, David in the Bronx, how about you? I know you're blind, uh, so maybe the television viewing experience is a little bit different for you. Well, yes. I actually uh, consume most of my TV shows through something called Pluto TV, which shows basically channels that are just reruns of, let's say, Three's Company, 24-7, so you can catch up on shows like that if you want to. Um, I listen to shows like Three's Company because I guess maybe it's lack of imagination on my part. I can't get into a new show because I can't picture the characters. Mm. I can't picture the scenery. But with a show like Therese Company that I saw so many times mm. growing up, when I'm listening to that show, I can picture their apartment. I can picture their char- the characters. You know, I can, I can see all that stuff in my mind. So I enjoy that show, even though the comedy has gotten kind of old. Th- that's interesting. So show- as far as TV yeah. shows and reruns specifically, David, you prefer w- w- watching shows that you've already seen when you had sight as opposed to trying to experience a new show for the first time without being able to see it. Exactly, because I used to watch, um, what's that zombie show? Uh, Walking uh, Dead. The, the Walking Dead. But after I lost my vision, so many of the characters changed. Mm. And I couldn't continue to follow the show because I couldn't picture any of what was going on. So you need something where you've seen what everybody looks like and know how it's going to go. Exactly. Makes sense. That makes sense, David. Thank you. You know, it's funny that he says that, and I wouldn't have thought of that, but it makes perfect sense. Rush Limbaugh, after he lost his hearing, even after he had his cochlear implant, he really couldn't enjoy new music that he hadn't heard before. The only music that he could enjoy, I think for kind of some of the same reasons that David is talking about, is music that he had already heard. Those were the only songs that he could, I, that I guess his brain could sort of fill in the blanks for. Anything new, he couldn't really enjoy. It just sounded like noise to him. That's interesting Interesting that David, with a different sense at play and a different political perspective, has sort of the same experience when it comes to television. That is interesting. Jennifer is in the Boogie Down Bronx. Hello, Jennifer. Hi, Frank. Um, it feels like a rerun, and it's 45 years, but General Hospital, every night it's like warm milk. <laughs> but, you know? but those are new episodes, though, right? Yes, but you have the same cast members, and they, you know, they age and... Sunny and all these people have been there forever. So it's like you feel like you're kind of watching the same show all the time. You know what I mean? I, I get it. So, but now General Hospital airs during the day, doesn't it? Yeah, but uh, VOD. I see. So you tape it and then watch it at night. No, no, it's on the VOD, like oh, on oh, oh, my cable vision. And then I watch it before I go to bed, and it's like it's the most relaxing thing in the whole world. Well, don't let it interfere with your listening of this program, Jennifer. We need you. <laughs> Well, listen, what about the district leaders? 
<laughs> and oh, explaining all that. Yeah, so you, you never touched on that. Well, you me. know what it is because I thought it was a little inside baseball for people. Uh, what did you end really? up? Really? Yeah. What did you end up doing in that in those uh, district leader races? By well, the way, people don't know I, what Jennifer's talking about. She wrote to me asking, what? "How do you know who to vote for in these primaries for district leader and so forth?" What did you end up doing? Well, I end up avoiding. It was like there was some progressives coming up that seemed to want to get involved. And I did some Googling, and I avoided them. That's what I did. There I you go. Well, so you did your due diligence as a voter. You don't need me, Jennifer. Thank you. It's always tough in those party positions because a lot of times both of the candidates you're choosing from, you don't necessarily know who they are. You know, it's funny. With the demise, not the demise, but the decline of local political journalism, it's tough to know even in some of the primaries for public offices who's who because there's no local articles, even in my community. I saw there was a, a primary for state assembly. I had never even, not in my district, but in, uh, you know, not a neighboring district. I saw one of the challengers to the incumbent assemblyman was a guy that I'd never even heard of. And then just this week, I learned that um, there's another contest for state senate, a primary coming up. I was unfamiliar with both candidates. And I called up a friend of mine who's in politics, an elected official, actually. I said, hey, who's running for this seat? And he said, oh, it's some guy. I don't know his name. These are politically astute people. But I think it goes to show you that even if you're super interested in what's happening politically, that once you get, I'd say, lower than the congressional level or lower than a borough-wide level, it's tough to, you know, it's tough to find quality news sources these days. That's an area where I really think, and I, I know some publications like Gotham Gazette and The City have done a good job in terms of furthering the cause of local political education. But that's one of those areas where I think we've really gone downhill. With all the resources that online journalism has provided people, it's tougher and tougher to know who's running for office in your neighborhood and what they believe in. So that's that. Hey, um, those of you that are on hold, you're still welcome to hold. We're going to play the $1,000 Minute next and give somebody an opportunity to win $1,000. So if you want to be the seventh caller to 800-848-9222, we'll give you a chance to answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds. And then we'll talk to Brian Kilmeade, get his take on the news of the day. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. WABC. Welcome back. Your dreams were your ticket out. Welcome back to that same old place that you laughed about. Well, the names have all changed since you hung around. But those dreams have remained and they've turned around. I gotta tell you, this was a show. It's obviously the theme to Welcome Back, Car- Cotter. That I found completely overrated you know if i see this show is on i'm watching it for two reasons one to hear this theme song and two to see young john travolta to me those are the only appealing aspects of this episode i don't really find it funny (laughs) although i was familiar with it enough to like when usually when i come in dominic carter's already here and i always say hey mr carter and uh mr carter yeah i know it's uh Fred Boom Boom he, Washington. Yeah, he gives me a, a giggle. I, I, I found it a little overrated. I used to watch it because it was on when I was a kid, and yeah, the school it. that they show 
is New Utrecht High School sure. no, no, in no, Brooklyn, yeah. and my parents went to that school. Oh, that's kind of so cool. So my mom's always like, that was my high school. That so is kind of cool. All right. Cool. It is time for... The Other Side of Midnight presents... It's the $1,000 Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Murano. Arthur in my hometown of Staten Island. Hello, Arthur. Hey, how are you? I'm I'm well, Arthur. Arthur, you're familiar with the contest, right? Yeah, yes. All right, let's get started and hopefully get you $1,000. The timer will begin after I ask the first question. You got a question right? We're just moving on to the next one, okay? Okay. All right. Name something they serve at McDonald's. A, a uh, egg McMuffin. What's the name of Barack Obama's wife? Uh, uh, Michelle. How many children do I have? You have one. Name one of the founders of Microsoft. Uh, for Paul Allen. Who won the Democratic primary for governor of New York State this week? Uh, who won the... the, the Democratic the primary for governor. Oh, uh, McAuliffe. McAuliffe? No. And unfortunately, it was Kathy Hochul, oh, so right. the governor, unfortunately. McAuliffe uh, was the former governor of Virginia, so it's wrong. Yeah, yeah, wrong, yeah. Right I'm job, right party, wrong wrong state, unfortunately. Arthur, I'm going to put you on hold and uh, give uh, Avery your information, and uh, he'll give you some reading material to uh, be familiarize yourself with Kathy Hochul. Someone who uh, correctly predicted that uh, Lee Zeldin was going to win pretty overwhelmingly in the Republican primary for governor is Brian Kilmeade, who, uh, in addition to being the host of Fox and & Friends... And uh, the co-host of the uh, Brian Kilmeade Show every day from 10 a.m. to noon right here on WABC. He is also a New York Times bestselling author. And he has a show which is just doing gangbusters on uh, on Saturdays on the Fox News Channel. Kind enough to join us every Thursday. Brian, how are you? Uh, all good, uh, Frank. How are you? I'm doing great. Uh, so I guess you weren't surprised at uh, Lee Zeldin's the breadth of his win in the primary. Uh, no, I mean, uh, I just think he's a four-term congressman. He had the support of most of the, the Republicans in this area, and he's got the support of Trump. He just couldn't, you know, it doesn't really work for you in New York to, to use that. So uh, most, if you talk to everyone from Kevin McCarthy on down, they are impressed as hell with him, the way he studies, shows up every day, understands the issues, and really lo- loves New York, was able to win in a purple area. Andrew Giuliani, really good on his feet. Thought he was very solid. You know, Rob Astorino's got a lot of talent. He's just not able to get uh, resonate uh, the last few times he ran. Uh, you got the businessman in there, but no doubt about it. Uh, Zeldin's got a lot for him. Also has a shot going for him at the Jewish community, being that's his Jewish background, along with the military background. Oh, it, it's going to be fascinating uh, a look here. People are comparing it to Virginia. But two things have not broken Zeldin's way. Number one, in New York, most people are for abortion. They're making it an abortion mecca. Number two, when it comes to guns, he's very conservative on both those areas. And I'm not sure that resonates. He's got to change the narrative. And it's not hard. It's legitimate. We care about taxes, care about inflation. And if you look at the cover of the New York Post last night with the 20-year-old mom Mm. pushing her stroller, uh, being shot and killed, 
crime. Well, so how does Zeldin change the narrative? How does he sort of become the Glenn Youngkin of New York State and get New Yorkers who are pro-choice and pro-gun control to say, forget about that stuff, elect me to deal with taxes, the cost of living, and crime? How does he get them to shift away from those those issues which are very, you know, very important to a lot of people? I think he's got to uh, point out how over over her head Hochul is and how corrupt Cuomo was. And I think he got to be a happy warrior. One thing about Yunkin, I spent uh, a day with him. I did a couple of features ad last Saturday. He's a happy guy. You know, he's in a tough fight, a big-time underdog against Terry McAuliffe. Already had won it. He's got the Clinton machine behind him. He can raise more money than anybody else in the country. But Yunkin outworked him, and he was happy about it. He listened to people. And the thing is, you know, now Trump can actually come out for you, and the Trump machine can be there. And he said, I was honored to get the Trump endorsement, but he didn't run with Trump. And that's what I think Zeldin's got to do again. Now that Andrew Giuliani's out, Trump can be unabashedly behind him, but he'll be behind. And I think you go to Manhattan, you meet with the firms, you let them know that we're going to, re- we're going to go out of our way uh, to keep you at Wall Street. And then we're going to go out and we're going to uh, meet with the families, victims of, uh, of crime, and let you know, I don't care about, uh, I don't care about Republican or Democrat. I'm here to keep you safe. The NYPD, you know how many retired officers are here, let alone active officers, and FDNY, how they've been abused by these COVID uh, crackdowns, how many restaurant owners have been just bled dry by these ridiculous uh, inspectors that came in and said, put your mask up or uh, there's $10,000 fine. Go out there, meet with the business people, let them know that crime matters. Every time you're behind a microphone, say, will you fire Alvin Bragg, Kathy Hochul? Because I will. The um, you know, I saw that interview that you did with uh, with Glenn Young, and it was terrific on One Nation with Brian Kilmeade. Also a very good interview with uh, Senator Tim Scott last weekend. But a lot of people are, are talking about Glenn Youngkin as a possible presidential candidate already. I mean, Virginia, you only get to serve one term. Almost you, you're looking for your next job as soon as you get elected. Do you think Youngkin has the chops to be a viable national candidate? There's no question, and the thing that really puts that question front and center, and he couldn't really duck it and just say it doesn't matter, I just got this shot, is because you only run one term. You only run one term in, in uh, Virginia. Virginia right. you, can't run, you can't run for your election. So he's got to think what's next. So he just quit a job. You know, he's worth $450 million. Unbelievable, right? Put $20 million in to win in Virginia of his own money, let alone money raised. And now at 55 years old, he's going to be done at 58 you know, next, you know, so he, you got to think he'd put his paperwork in to run because evidently there's a lot of unsolicited, very powerful people who think she's legitimate. And the other guy is DeSantis. But DeSantis uh, firmly linked with Trump. I think a lot of people look at that as disloyalty. And that would kind of blow up the party if he, if Trump was to lose to DeSantis, he'd take his 35% or maybe 70% of Republicans, whoever didn't vote for him, and he'd leave, as we've seen, that Donald Trump doesn't like to lose. Uh, he will just take them with him. So the Democrat will win the presidency. But Youngkin's on the outside. He could say, yeah, I like Trump a lot. I, I just think I'd be a better president. It, That's a better argument. 
You were, you, if people just tuned in, we're talking with Brian Kilmeade. Uh, you can see him on Fox and Friends this morning and then hear him here on WABC beginning at 10 a.m. Uh, both uh, just uh, terrific shows doing gangbusters in the ratings. You were quoted on, um, on the Media Buzz show with Howard Kurtz as saying that uh, after January 6th, President uh, Trump was unhinged. Uh, and uh, I'm wondering, you know, a, a lot of, tr- you know, Trump diehards in our audience hear anything that may resemble criticism of Donald Trump and they just bristle. Well, what did you mean by that when you said that you thought the president was unhinged well, following his loss? Well, I mean, I, I was the only one to interview him in between his loss and the inauguration. I caught up to him at West Point and he was I've never seen him so angry. And this was in an afternoon game, Army Navy, about to flip the coin, come out, you know, the last weeks of his presidency. And I've just I saw him and he, afterwards he, he said, I gave you a lot and I appreciated the interview, but he was just irate. And I'm not, I'm not saying you should be, you know, they, that phrase, if you're a good loser, you show me a good loser, I'll show you a loser. I don't agree with that, but I understand the mindset. But what I, my point is this. When you lose, you have all this money. You had an A-team of lawyers. You say, I want you to look in Wisconsin. I want you to look in Arizona. I want you to look in Pennsylvania. I'm really concerned about Philadelphia. I want you to, I want you to look in Georgia. And this is the strategy. Then you go out in front of the public, and you say this pandemic rules – uh, that cha- that they changed the rules in these states, and it didn't. You know, I really would like to look into it. I got my best legal team on it, but the first and foremost, I care about this country. As soon as I get the green light for my guys, if there's if they don't have anything there, I'm going to welcome the Bidens to the White House. And and by December fifth, twelfth, his A team had basically resigned because they said, "Listen, there's nothing here. I'm not going to take any more of your money." There's something. There's always discrepancies in an, an election, but not enough to say that it, it went either way. Eighty-two million to seventy-four. million. Million. You got more votes than any Republican in history, uh, despite all the headwinds you had in the phony Russia investigation. And instead of doing that, he doesn't show up for the inauguration. He has that rally, ill-advised rally on January 6th and tells everyone to march to the Capitol. And when you lose Mike Pence, the most loyal uh, uh, ally you have that is couldn't be more opposite of you, but just did everything you needed, including the pandemic response, and you support the people that say, hang Mike Pence, and they set up a noose outside the place. That's a huge problem. And Rudy Giuliani's advice was terrible. Um, you have uh, his other law, legal team, uh, Jenna Ellis, and them, were unable to produce anything they promised. And we have people – I know people like Lindsey Graham and Jim Jordan were ready to run with anything. They couldn't get him any facts. And as soon as that's the case, you go, listen, I don't feel good about this. I don't think Joe Biden got 82 million votes. But I'm doing the transition of power, like Nixon-Kennedy, which there was legitimate cheating. Oh, yeah. And to Andrew Jackson back to 1824, they did a deal in Congress. He won the popular vote, and they just basically took it from him. And he came back in four years and won that, and then he won re-election, was more powerful after office. So I thought he was that was his worst moment. Those three weeks were President Trump's worst moment. And we're going through it. Not only did he get impeached, but he but now we're going through it again. 
Well, what yes. a waste of time and money. I don't know. I couldn't agree more. But, you know, we're seeing this January 6th committee, which a lot of uh, Republicans already viewed somewhat skeptically. And we saw the uh, testimony from Ms. Hutchinson this week, which seemed initially pretty damning, including a report that uh, the president lunged uh, to grab the steering wheel over the Secret Service agent that was driving the vehicle because the president wanted to go to the Capitol. Apparently, the Secret Service is telling people, this is not accurate, and they have agents that are prepared to offer testimony that totally refutes uh, what Hutchinson is saying. What was your take on her testimony in general and the fact that the Secret Service was willing to come out and say so publicly that her version of events was inaccurate? Well, a couple of things. I mean, for them to come forward, I I talked to people that know, uh, I think his name is Bobby Angle, who is the person who evidently was at the wheel at the time, and they say he is... An unbelievable person. His integrity is without question. And for him to come forward and say, listen, i got to testify and straighten out the record, they have to put him up. They have to. And they keep telling us, and we know this is a one-sided affair. Well, you know, i got two Republicans on there, and Republicans refuse to be on there. Well, okay. You're telling us a story. You know, Frank, you and I have to edit. A lot of times, you know, you put together specials, you sure. edit together stories, and, and you and I don't go, hey, you know that uh, interview I really screwed up? Put it on the 4th of July special. <laughs> hey, you remember when I misprint, you know, mispronounced this guy's name? Make sure that's in it. And you know when I got those stats wrong? So what happens is they put all the people that said to tell the story that they want to tell. Now, this is the first time that these guys go, excuse me, I like to go testify under oath. Now, if they turn him down, the credibility is shot with independents, not with Democrats. They're already in, and they already convinced Trump is the worst. But it is shot. It gives Republicans reason to say legitimately they have no interest in the truth. They just have an interest in hurting Trump. So he's got, they got to come forward. Now, the question is, do they come forward and say he didn't lunge at the wheel, but he banged the seat? Are they going to come forward and say that uh, um, I, they would, he was irate that he was demanding to go down the Capitol, and I had to overcome him. He just never assaulted me. He never, or is he going to say, I went to the car president, and I said, Mr. President, I can't drive you down there. It's too dangerous, and it'll inflame the situation. And he got very angry at me, and he left the car. That's a lot different. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, no. So, and and sip, they they sip, they actually subpoenaed Pat Cipollone, which he can't come. No lawyer would ever come, would ever offer legal advice to a president if they could be subpoenaed for it. So Cipollone's got to stiff arm this. So I, I think that the credibility is really on the line here with Cassidy Hutchinson because she's convincing in her delivery, but a lot of her facts aren't lining up. And why was she applying for a job at Mar-a-Lago with a president that she really has this? Sure. This much disdain for it. Sure. She applied for a job, and they said, "No, you're a leaker." A couple of quick other items I have to get you to go through before we uh, before we let you go. I caught a bit of your show this week from the Navy Seal Museum. I'm embarrassed to admit this, but I didn't even know such a thing existed. And to think it's right in our backyard, and I'm guessing a lot of our listeners probably may not be aware of its existence. Tell folks about this Navy Seal Museum and your experience there. Yeah, don't don't blame yourself. It just opened Tuesday, so it uh, you know it was it, it's a facility of five million dollars, but with all the people donating their materials and their expertise from contractors to landscapers uh, to architects, it cost two million, and then it was all raised with private funds, and it's raised after Michael Murphy, uh, New York's finest, and he after graduating from Penn State, he says, you know what, with two degrees and with honors. 
I got, you know, it's 2002. I'm joining the military, and I'm going to join the Navy, and I'm going to try to be a Navy SEAL. And evidently, Michael Murphy, an outrageously great athlete, just impressed everyone, top of his class, and he was depicted in Lone Survivor, and he was the one that lost his life mm. knowing that he had to get a signal out, grabbed a phone, a satellite phone, went and called in help. Marcus Luttrell, the only survivor, his dad put together this Navy SEAL museum, but just as an honor of Michael Murphy, his name's on it. Since 1942, we've had Navy SEALs. Only about 18,000 made the cut and served, but no one knows really exactly what they did. So this is a tribute to them. Go to West Sayville. Everyone goes to the Hamptons. Stop on this road, on Merrick Road, and you will love the town. And then you'll go up to this golf course, and there you'll see the Michael Murphy Museum. It's not, it's 5,000 square feet. You're going to get through it quick, but it's going to be impactful. Every step matters. It was so great, and it's going to be featured this Saturday cool. uh, on my show. And then I got this What Made America Great series where I do the history. For, I'm 46. i got four more coming out today. Uh, the history of oil, the history of Hollywood, the history of automobiles, and the history of law enforcement. Uh, Nassau County Commissioner Pat Ryder helped me out with it significantly, and I was able to go to the, their training facility, found out the role Teddy Roosevelt played, New York, the first official fire department, what he did, uniforms, guns, uh, discipline, organization. Uh, it's legendary. It changed the country when it comes to law enforcement. So I think that People might enjoy it if you just go to Fox Nation. Half-hour documentaries. I hear at least one day is going to be rainy. Why not just click on that app and watch that stuff? Oh, no. I can't think of a better way to spend a uh, rainy uh, July 3rd or even if uh, if it does end up raining on July 4th. And we hope people get some nice weather. But um, I know you're a sports guy, and uh, I caught a little bit of a, a preview you were doing of the USFL championship game that's airing this Sunday. I think a lot of people remember the USFL of the 1980s that Donald Trump was involved in and then had a lot of NFL stars uh, part of, you know, future NFL stars part of that league. It seems like the USFL this season, um, since it came back, it didn't really get the same sort of attention that other alternative football leagues uh, have gotten. Do you get the sense that there's a lot of people that are into the USFL championship game? And if the USFL, if my supposition is correct, that it didn't get the same kind of uh, momentum that the previous version of it did, why do you think that's the case? couple of things. Uh, they, they're trying to be fiscally responsible. Fox owns uh, half that NBC has a broadcast rights, and uh, they didn't. They had a problem with the licensing. That's why you didn't see uh-huh. Herschel Walker and Doug Flutie and Jim Kelly and Steve Young. All these guys were basically putting up their hands. Go, I'll help you with this. And they're not looking to take on the NFL. They're looking to be. They're looking to be. If you're on the NFL, you're out of football. Think about that. If you don't play in the major leagues, there's no minor leagues. There's no ducks. Right. So in football, there's so much talent. So what they said is, we're going to do something XFL and AAF didn't do. We're going to survive to year two. And to do that, we're going to be fiscally responsible. We're going to put everyone in one city, Birmingham. We're going to let them practice in the same facility, save money, uh, same area. And they're going to, we're going to play two divisions back-to-back. We're going to have the names. And as owners step up, like the MLS, they're going to split them out and go to their cities. Birmingham's got an owner. I should tell you, no one knows this. Birmingham's got an owner that steps up. They average like fifteen, twenty thousand with very little marketing. Uh, they were the only home team. The generals have some interest, and they're going to start splitting these guys, these teams out to their cities. First thing they want to do is establish football, put a network broadcast together, great broadcasters. And they got about a million viewers each time, so which is pretty significant. So they're going to, the XFL is going to be a, a challenge to them with The Rock, but they got a lot of really good players, so it's going to be Sunday at 730. And I went to Birmingham and watched some of it. The football is great. 
Um, and I, I think these guys are so thankful, you know, to have an opportunity to continue their careers. And a lot of them are going to be in NFL camps. You watch. And I think you, know, you for these quarterbacks, they need to play. It can't be on taxi squads. You, mm-hmm. you know, the starting quarterback of the Washington Redskins last year, I think it was uh, Henneke, he was in the XFL. He was done. No one had any interest. He, still, he finished the season. He's got another job this year. So I just think if you look at the league as not competing, mm. but the AAA, even though they don't want to say that, I think it's got a legitimate shot. It's all set to come back next year. It's going to be back in Birmingham. As a, they're going to have three hubs. One might even be in Philadelphia. When they get this licensing thing done, they're going to be able to tap into that gotcha. legacy from Bardo gotcha. to down. And so next year we'll have season two of the USFL and uh, the reincarnation of the XFL as well. So there'll be a lot of alternative football yeah. to the NFL. But that'll be exciting. Hey, uh, what's coming up on Fox and Friends and what's coming up on radio today? Well, Dow Johnson's going to be on. You know, he is uh, the vice president of the league, the USFL. Um, also, uh, we're going to have uh, Stephen Moore. Uh, he just was to put together a list of how uh, unremarkable the business careers of everyone on the economic side for this White House is. Uh, Mark Thiessen's going to be here, put a perspective on January 6th, everything we were just discussing. And Lieutenant Colonel Alan West, uh, NATO expands Sweden and Finland are in. But what's actually happening on the ground in Ukraine? Alan West with us, as well as what's happening on the border in Texas. As you know, he ran the GOP in Texas. That horrific death of 53 in a tractor trailer might be the spur, the Uvalde mm. moment that gets us to finally reinforce this border, I hope. No, so you, you and me both. Brian, it's always a treat to talk with you. I know how busy you are, and I really appreciate you making time for us. Frank, anything. He shows, he shows legendary. Honored to join you. Thank you. Brian Kilmeade. Check him out on Fox and Friends. While you keep Bernie and Sid on the radio, keep Fox and Friends on TV, and then see Brian at 10 a.m. on WABC. 15 seconds of fame in just a moment. 800-848-WABC. Say whatever you want for 15 seconds. 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. WABC. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC. side of midnight with one of our theme songs this one uh, done by stevie g and the cufflinks nobody better uh, just search them on itunes they're just terrific meantime now's your opportunity to be heard 800-848-WABC say whatever you like for 15 seconds it's time for the other side of midnight this is 15 seconds of fame mike in the poconos hey frank top of the morning man uh I was going to talk about some of my favorite TV shows as an old-timer, 68. But uh, I'll get to the point, 15 seconds. Uh, great show, and uh, shout-out to Giuseppe from Ronkonkoma. He's got a birthday July 4th. Ray, Ray in New Jersey. Eric Adams, you're underqualified. Go over your head, get out. Frank Morano, watch, locked up abroad, binge watch. Great show. Mike on Staten Island. Good morning. Good morning, Frank. I love reruns, but you'll never get a rerun at Dino and Son in Woodside. Today for lunch, I recommend a Chris Burger. And finally, Evelyn in New Jersey. Frank, Alex made my day. Please tell him to get watch his email because um, 
he'll be a little surprised. I'm going to give him some books from my library. Th- thank you, Evelyn. Back tomorrow with Ask Frank Anything. Deb Valentine is next. Frank Moreno, good day.